2: That's Bluenile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. Bluenile.com.
3: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello. Hi. Welcome back to Old
4: Millennials, a deep dive on the late 90s and early 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Margot Poupard.
1: And I am one of your other hosts, Emily Bejen.
4: Happy Halloween! And this is the part two to our Halloween episode, Extravaganza, if if you can consider two parts to be an extravaganza. But I think it is, because we have a very fun guest later on who is a comedian, actor, actress. She said not activist, but I'm fighting that urge to say it all together. (laughs) Alyssa Sanchez, we work together at Killing My Lobster in San Francisco, and she loves horror movies just like me and Emily do. Well, Emily is newer to the club, but mostly... I'm enjoying them.
1: I'm enjoying
4: them. I am a huge horror movie buff, and Alyssa and I bonded on a show over the summer because we both love horror movies and we're big on horror lore, so she'll be joining us to talk about Halloween, H2O, Scream Queens, and a bunch of other stuff in between. We talked for a very long time, so you're in for quite a treat. Before we get into the topics for today's spooky edition of Old Millennials, I just want to say—well, both of us want to say—thanks for listening because we just hit another milestone: three thousand downloads. Ow. Spooky confetti, yeah. werewolf celebra- sound. That was a celebratory werewolf. <laughs> that was a werewolf. <laughs> oh, there we go. Okay, <laughs> wasn't <Cher>. share? <laughs> <laughs> Why can we walk pushy? Let
1: me- Move my hair back.
4: Let me tell you something, Bob. We had 3,000 downloads and we're really excited and thanks. That's kind of all I wanted to say. Just we really wanted to appreciate shine it. a quick light on that. But today, no, we are talking about teen slashers that you know and love. Of course. So more specifically, Scream 2 and I know what you did last summer. But wait, why are you doing a sequel and then the original? Because Scream 2 doesn't get enough love. Yeah. That's what I think. I agree. Um, I like to consider myself a bit of a Scream franchise buff because I was, well, partly because I have seen all of them and have very strong opinions on them, and also because I was on another podcast called Sequel Harder last year talking about the entire franchise and why I think it's so good and iconic and a integral part of not only horror movies but also pop culture. Because with these five little words, what's your favorite scary movie? A massive fucking blockbuster yeah. of a horror franchise was born. My Love of Scream starts a lot like other people's who were introduced to horror movies by their older siblings or cousins or what have you. My friend Val's older sister let us watch it in the fifth grade because I'm convinced she fucking hates us or hated us. I don't know which one. I definitely think she still hates me. And it gave me weeks' worth of nightmares, and I've been obsessed with it ever since. Actually, and I hate to be that person that's going to describe their dream, but I'm going to do it really fast. I had a horrible nightmare, like, a couple days after I'd seen it. And we'd watched it, mind you, broad daylight. And after we watched it, Val and I wandered into our apartment complex courtyard almost dazed because we'd never seen something like that before. And a couple days later, I had a scary dream where I was trying to outrun Ghostface in my own home, and I had to set up Macaulay Culkin-level Home Alone traps to get away from him, but I still managed to fucking die, and I woke up, like hyperventilating essentially. So, I don't know why, but something about all of these things combined made me a Scream franchise buff.
1: I love the Scream franchise as well. I have seen all the movies, but I will say, you know what's crazy is I actually saw a scary movie, the parody in which Scream is the focal, you know, the the plot. That is that the
4: first movie that you saw?
1: I saw it before I saw Scream. <laughs>
4: How did that change seeing Scream for you then? Because I do think it spoofs it very it well. It spoofs it so well. But like almost to the point where it would make the original Scream not scary anymore.
1: Well, I mean, I, I think it was still scary enough because I, I think I'd seen them far enough apart. I think I saw Scary Movie when I was like 11 or 12. Whenever it came out, um, I, I saw it because it was, it was R-rated, but I still saw it. Um, and then in high school, I saw Scream, so I think I'd forgotten enough of it that I it was like I still remembered bits and pieces. Like um, I think Doofy is is Dewey's name. <laughs> yeah, it is.
4: It is. and,
1: and um, <laughs> But, like, other than that, like, it was it was still enough. Like, I, I kind of knew the gist of it, but, like, it I had been far enough that I could enjoy it and still be scared by it. And I still love Scream.
4: So why am I not talking about Scream O.G.? Especially when Scream 2 really could have been called Scream the College Years because it basically trades Woodsboro High for Windsor College, which is fake. Windsor College is. I think Woodsboro High is actually real. Even though William Goldman, R.I.P., says that sequels are horror movies, I think that Scream 2 is one of the all-time great slasher sequels. In its quest to tell us all of the different ways that sequels, especially horror movie sequels, suck and are terrible and have ruined the horror genre, it ends up becoming a really good one on its own merits too outside of the Scream franchise. For sure. I feel like you could drop in and watch Scream 2, Scream 2 without having seen Scream 1 yeah. and not really need to know any of that. I you sort see. of like get the general gist without it being sort of beaten over the head with exposition throughout. Yeah. So, just like its predecessor, there are rules to successfully surviving a horror movie sequel. One, the body count is always bigger. Mm -hmm. Two, the death scenes are always much more elaborate with more blood and more gore, which Scream 2 definitely delivers on. And, even though Randy gets cut off when he starts to describe the third rule, it is in its completion this. If you want your films to become more successful than ever... Never, ever, ever, under any circumstance, assume that the killer is dead. I also feel like that could be true of many horror movie franchises. You can't assume that of, I know what you did last summer Halloween, Jason, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Chucky. Yeah. Uh, I'm probably forgetting some, but those are the top six, I think, for me. So, a little bit of background about Scream 2. It was directed, again, by Wes Craven, who you may know from Nightmare on Elm Street, and written by Kevin Williamson, Dawson's Creek, etc. Scream 2 was released the day after my birthday, December 12, 1997, less than a year after the first Scream. When Williamson originally shopped around Scream, he came up with a five-page outline for a sequel, hoping to entice buyers with the potential of buying an actual franchise as opposed to a one-off horror movie script. Following a successful test screening of Scream and the film's financial and critical success, Dimension, who distributed the trilogy, moved forward with a sequel while Scream was still in theaters, with the surviving cast to return along with Craven to direct and Marco Beltrami to provide the music. Scream proceeded to gross more than $50 million in its first month of release. And with that, the production on the sequel was greenlit in March of 97 with an increased budget of $24 million over Scream's 15, which is quite the bump. Principal photography began in June and it took place over nine weeks, being released in the same year. So that's like a really tight turnaround schedule. And they shot in Atlanta, Georgia and Los Angeles to represent the state of Ohio, which is where the fictional Windsor College is. Combined with the film's rushed schedule and large number of extras because they were ostensibly trying to have a college campus feel. And it doesn't feel like an empty college campus at all. No, 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 which no, Which no. I feel like you could say that West, or I'm sorry, I always want to call it Westboro. <laughs> but Woodsboro, Woodsboro High School could always kind of feel a little bit empty. Obviously, right. they had an increased budget, so they had way more extras. But this resulted in the full details of the script being leaked onto the internet shortly after the filming, after filming wrapped which Craven cited as the production's first major experience with a leak. Following the script leak into filming, security around the production obviously increased and they started having closed film sets and strict restrictions on people who... On who could be present during filming and have access to the script and everybody was forced to sign non-disclosure agreements and they even reprinted some of the scripts on like specialty paper to prevent it from being photocopied or destroyed and be uploaded. It just had like watermarks. I mean, it's sort of like all the same stuff that you see now for things like a Game of Thrones script or like sure. things that are highly coveted it's and likely like to leak like online. Standard
1: business procedure now but back then was like something uncharted territory. It, I mean,
4: it was almost sort of like, you know, scats honor, like you were just kind of right. assumed to be on right. your best behavior, especially if you were Extra, and you wanted to be called back or even have a career, you can't fucking leak details on the internet. No. Unfortunately, The Identity of the Killers was also leaked online. Because of this, the script was rewritten often. Pages were sometimes completed the day of filming. But despite these issues, Scream 2 would go on to earn $172 million at the box office. It received several awards and nominations. It had really positive critic reviews, even though. People were worried that it was a sequel. Actually, critics argued that it was better than the original in quality and in filmmaking. Like, quality of script and also quality of, like, shots. And it was just more refined. And I think the increased budget is probably a likely factor of that. Like its predecessor, Scream 2 combines the violence and the slasher genre with elements of comedy and, like, the whodunit mystery. While satirizing the cliches of film sequels. This film was followed by two sequels, Scream 3 in 2000 and Scream 4 in 2011. I think Scream 1, 2, and 3 are all very solid. I really love the third one, too. I actually was trying to think, like, do I like 2 more than 1? I was like, yeah, but 3 is also great.
1: It's still a good movie.
4: I think it's, the meta commentary is so, I mean, Parker Posey is so Good in Scream yeah. Three. I mean, she's, she's so a funny. Anything she's in, and I also feel like this was Scream Three was, and not to get too off track, we will get to Scream Two in a second. But Scream Three, I think one of the things that it did so well, and that they also that they kind of built off of from Scream Two, was showing Sydney's trauma from surviving this not once but twice. Like she's right. living in isolation. She has a golden retriever. She stays away. She's sort of like in in. Um, citizens, I was gonna say citizens arrest, witness protection, Witness protection. and in two, she was still trying to have some semblance of normalcy, and she just wanted to be a regular person and put this all behind her, which is a perfect segue into the plot summary. Broadly, Scream 2 is about a copycat killer that pops up two years after the first series of murders and during the release of Stab, the fictionalized version of events at Woodsboro. Meanwhile, Sydney, our final girl, is now in college and trying to be normal. She's joined by her only remaining friend, Randy. But Ghostface reappears to put a stop to all of that. So instead of painstakingly combing through all of the plot points, I just pulled out, because I rewatched Scream 2, which is streaming on Netflix, in addition to Scream 1, I just pulled out some of the more iconic scenes, and I'm just going to pontificate on them (laughs) a little bit. So The Cold Open is another iconic cold open. I feel like in sequels, they find it difficult to top themselves. But I thought this did a really good job of combining not only a meta-commentary, quite literally, because, well, let's just start at the beginning. Jada Smith, or Jada Pickett-Smith, is... On a date with Omar Epps, a.k.a. Phil Stevens and Maureen Evans. I don't think I've ever seen a less Phil stevensy looking person in my life than, Phil, than Omar Epps. I'm very sorry. Phil Stevens? You think that guy's name is Phil Stevens? Okay. I mean, I know what you guys are trying to do, but you literally could have given him any other name other than Phil. Have you ever met a Phil? I don't think so. Anyway, they are going on a date to the premiere of Stab, and not only was this the first time that this dawned on me that anything bad could actually happen to you in a movie theater, this was also a very scary cold open because it combines this fear of, like, this mass frenzy, and I think it, it also predicted a trend of people showing up to movies dressed up. Yeah, it did. And I think this sort of and if you want to put it in 2019 context, people were really scared that people were going to dress up like the Joker when the Joker came out and, like, go on a stabbing spree. Yeah. And and, yeah. and stabs, not stab, <laughs> and Scream 2 sort of, like, predicted this trend because it'll only get more popular as, you know, we see things like Harry Potter, even the re-release of Star Wars. People come dressed up sometimes to movies. Yeah. So it, it continues this trend of having a shockingly memorable cold open with even more gore and horror while we watch Heather Graham simultaneously get stabbed in the chest as she recreates Drew Barrymore's iconic cold open from the first screen. Omar Epps gets stabbed in the motherfucking ear oh God, in a bathroom yeah. stall. Originally, he was supposed to get stabbed in the ear three times, but luckily the MPAA intervened, and so Wes Craven only had to just limit it to one. But even still, he goes into the bathroom after he scares... Jada Pickett Smith, when she goes to get, when she comes back from getting uh, popcorn and um, soda from the concession stand, which I love in the movie, they're sitting in the theater at first and she asks him for his money and he asks her where her money is and she said, Don't worry about my money. I'm asking for your money, which I loved because it just made me think of that Megan the Stallion lyric He know he given his money to Megan. It is very expensive to date me. <laughs> Anyway, when she walks back out, he scares her with the stab mask, and she gets freaked out. And she says how much she doesn't appreciate it. She goes into the theater to watch the movie. He goes to the bathroom. He enters the seemingly empty bathroom, and this is another like homage to the first scream where Sydney is assaulted in the high school bathroom, which was another fucking terrifying scene that made me very scared of public bathrooms for the longest time. I know this movie really fucked me up, but you know, it's just like, I don't have great relationships. So maybe that's why, maybe that's something I should unpack in therapy, about why I have this relationship with Scream and how it traumatized me. So but anyway, he gets in there, he's going pee in a stall, which like, I don't know why he wasn't peeing in a urinal now that I think about it, but he's in the stall. He hears some like wrestling. So he puts his ear up to the stall, which I don't know what would compel you to ever do that in a public restroom. When I was flying back, I didn't tell you this. <laughs> Why does
1: that make me think of glory holes?
4: Be- I, it, it kind of is reminiscent to that, which, like, like this there's...
1: This the sweetest thing. Exactly. I like, oh, was going to oh, say puppy,
4: that. puppy? But where are you, puppy? When I was leaving Mexico City, I was in the airport. I went to go pee before I got on the plane. And there was a woman in the stall next to me, very loudly, going poop. And I'm very sorry that I'm going to some scatological kind of humor here. But it was very... I didn't need to lean my ear up to the stall to, like, make sure that's what was happening. Because, first of all, it's in my fucking business. And second of all, I can hear that. And then her friend who was waiting for her fucking called her out. She was like, Brandy? What? Are you done? This woman is very clearly not done. And she proceeds to continue to ask her when she'll be done. And then finally, this poor woman next to me is forced to yell to untold amounts of strangers in this airport bathroom. I'm pooping! And, like, in between farts. Like, it was just so awful. So My whole whole point is that, Omar Epps, you don't need to put your ear up there. Just don't. It's fine. Anyway, I think the more tragic and fucked up murder is when Jada is sitting there watching the movie, trying to enjoy herself, trying to watch, trying to watch Heather Graham get killed while popcorn burns. He comes back, who she thinks is Phil Stevens, comes back with the mask on and they're sitting next to each other and she's like pointing out how like, oh, it's so scary and oh, yada yada, like I can't believe this. And she's leaning into him. And when she pulls away, she realizes that her hands are covered in blood. And as soon as she realizes this, she gets immediately gutted. Like, stabbed in the gut aggressively. And as she tries to get away, he continues to stab her. And nobody notices because everybody in this fucking theater is goddamn hooligan with their screen masks on, all fake stabbing each other. There's one cut away to some random white girl who also has blood who I think, like, I think Jada walks past her and like gets blood on her and she's the first person to notice that, oh, maybe something's amiss. But no one notices shit until she climbs up on the stage and stands in front of the screen and wails and then dies. And that is the opening. Like that's that's zero. That is neutral. This is where we start. By and I don't
1: count th- two within <laughs> ten minutes.
4: And not I mean under ten, which yeah. like, you know, fucking Christopher Nolan could never slow ass <laughs> but
1: that just makes me think when i saw like the dark night with my dad he was like it was good it was slow
4: i was just thinking of dunkirk i was like
1: oh come on ladies
4: <laughs> i don't got time <laughs>
1: world war one is going
4: to... <laughs> let's and we're on a boat like where? what are we doing where are we going ah. i just feel anxiety i need some sort of payoff Another iconic kill is the C.C. Walker murder. C.C. Walker is played by Sarah Michelle Gellar. She's a sorority girl who has a film class with Jamie Kennedy, where Jamie Kennedy, all he does is answer questions in class obnoxiously while doing bad accent work. Like, worse than mine.
1: Congratulations, Jamie Kennedy. You worked out of... A- low-rent blockbuster
4: yeah congrats you were at planet video we all see you but even just like i used to think he was really funny but watching scream 2 now it was a full body cringe when he started doing like the godfather 2 voice it's like please stop please please i cannot hear the sweaty michael cordione impression that you're trying to do he gave
1: jamie kennedy too much credit for about 10
4: years it's because we had no one else or they wouldn't let us have anyone else that's, that's why Apparently, Cece also has an alcoholic, good-for-nothing boyfriend, and one night, she's home alone in the midst of all these murders, and she's on the phone, and it's, I think, a a nod to Drew Barrymore's open, where she's in this big, empty house watching TV, and she's a little freaked out, and against all odds, she decides to not trust her gut, because she's on the phone, she hears a little beep for call waiting, which, like, what nostalgia. Mm -hmm. She clicks over, she thinks it's Ted, her alcoholic boyfriend. It's not Ted, her alcoholic boyfriend. Eat as which she soon finds out rudely after she hangs up on her friend who's keeping her phone company which all girls can relate to that all people could probably relate to that if you are a little faint of heart or a little bit anxiety driven she hangs up on her she finds out it's not ted she gets freaked out she goes outside she tries to call nine one one. there's a bad connection she can't get she can't get through she's trying to call for help it's not working she gets back inside jump scare it's her roommate the phone rings again her dumb roommate picks it up She thinks it's act. The dude knows now To pretend to be Ted Says it's Ted Gives her the phone Roommate leaves And Dun dun Ghostface is already In the house Her roommate leaves Locks her in She sets the alarm code She proceeds to be Chased around the house By Ghostface And eventually Runs up the stairs Which come on Sarah Michelle Gellar You're Buffy for fuck's sake Like why are you Doing this to yourself Why are you doing this To yourself She This is my favorite part though She throws a fucking Bike at him To try and stop him (laughs) she just like takes his back she's like "Eh," like just wheels it down this hallway (laughs) then she runs up to the roof she runs at this like second floor balcony he throws her through the glass he also then stabs her a bunch of times and throws her over the side great another iconic scene is the i think i love you scene or jerry o'connell top guns or if you're you and me he 10 things i hates about you but like not as good it's not the same song i know but it's a very similar sentiment so Jerry O'Connell sings off-key to Nev Campbell in the cafeteria the day after she and him too are attacked by Ghostface and CC dies. It's all the same night because at the same time that CC is getting brutally murdered, Nev Campbell's character is being convinced by her roommate Hallie to join the sorority with Rebecca Gayhart and Portia de Rossi, but she hates it there. And halfway through this party, they're like, "Oh my god! Like down the street, there are a bunch of cops!" And so when they go to like check out what's going on. Nev Campbell gets attacked. She, like, curses out Ghostface. They have, like, a one-on-one. And this is when they have suspicion thrown all the way onto Derek, a.k.a. Jerry O'Connell's character, because he runs in after she narrowly escapes Ghostface and gets cut perfectly on his arm. And he's pre-med, so, like, why couldn't it be him? Plus, Nev Campbell has, like, a track record, albeit a very short one, of being attacked by her former boyfriends for X, Y, and Z reasons. So everybody suspects that Derek is the killer and when Sid tries to break up with him he basically puts her in a lose-lose situation by forcing her to get back with him when he breaks out into song in the cafeteria and gets everybody to join in after she says yes he gives her his greek letters to quote-unquote protect her which
1: lavaliers her
4: yeah he pins her but with a necklace which is a great segue into the weird Greek play that Sydney is inexplicably in. Apparently Sid is a part of the theater club, but it's never really talked about or set up in any sort of real way. We just sort of like, are dropped into a rehearsal, which is apparently a rehearsal for Agamemnon, where she plays Cassandra, which, like, which is, like, another... How are you going to have two fucking meta layers where it's, like, a literal Greek tragedy happening and a literal fictionalization of the events of trauma that happened to Sydney only two years ago? Like, how are we going to have these two competing themes? I don't know. It shouldn't work, but oddly enough, it does work because... Her being a part of Agamemnon is essentially the setup for the last fight scene, which works really, really well because Sydney can weaponize parts of like the cheesy set design against her tormentors, which obviously are going to be two of them, like the opening it's meta. Especially when her boyfriend is dropped down, when he's tied under the star, and he's, like, sort of being crucified. And you think, oh, he's going to break free and be like, ha, 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 like, I'm actually one of your tormentors. Turns out he just gets shot in the chest by his best friend, played by Timothy Oliphant. Oh, yeah. And when that happens, Sydney tries to stop the bleeding by putting her hands over that bullet wound. And um, it doesn't really work. Sid is forced into this dilemma, and it requires her to reenact the circumstances from the first films and confront the lingering aftershocks of her mom's mortal transgressions, which leads me perfectly into why is everybody still slut-shaming Maureen, Sid's mom? Seriously, when will it stop? Three movies, this dead woman cannot fucking rest. First, Billy, who kills Maureen and then attacks Sidney and kills all of her friends. Then, his fucking mom, Mrs. Loomis... Sid is basically, like, the proxy for all of the rage that she wants to take out on Maureen. And then lastly, you know, Scott Speedman, who blames Maureen for being a fucking slut. Another thing that stands out from Scream 2 is Randy dies. He's not supposed to die. Or at least that's, like, what you're led to believe. But he dies really gruesomely while he's on the phone with Ghostface. And it starts as a scene with... Randy, Dewey, and Gail all standing in a quad trying to figure out who on a cell phone because it's like the very beginning of like cell phones and emails oh, yeah. and like beat me. And they're all trying to figure out who on this quad, who's on a cell phone is Ghostface. Randy, of course, splits off and goes off by himself, and in the middle of his tirade against Ghostface, he happens to be standing by Gail's camera truck. He gets pulled inside and just brutally fucking murdered. This was another sticking point with the MPAA. It was a really shocking death. I think it really upset a lot of the fans. But I think it was good. You gotta kill your darlings. And I think that they do a really good job of folding him into the third one and making sure that like his quote-unquote spirit is still alive. The killers! It's Mickey, Timothy Oliphant, who is best friends with Derek, Jerry O'Connell's character. And all of this is orchestrated by Mrs. Loomis. Mickey shoots Derek, and he also shoots, he tries to shoot Gail, but then he's ultimately murdered by Mrs. Loomis before she tries to murder... Sid and Gil and like a little twofer special. But luckily, Cotton saves the day. In a standoff between Debbie holding Sid at knife point, Debbie tries to like entice Cotton into being like the hero because Sidney's ruined his life and he's had to go to jail and wham wham wham. Poor Leaf Schreiber. But eventually he does the right thing and shoots Debbie in the face, saving Sid. And when the cameras show up to report on this scene, Sidney gives him all the credit and he has the iconic line: I'll tell you one thing, it'd make one hell of a movie. The Stab cast is fucking bananas. Heather Graham plays Drew Barrymore's character from the for- first one. Tori Spelling plays Sydney. David Schwimmer plays Dewey. Luke Wilson is Skeet Ulrich. It's amazing, and Nancy O'Dell plays herself, and she's introducing a clip from the movie with Tori Spelling as Sydney and Luke Wilson as Skeet Ulrich, and them having like their little confrontation in the high school hallway before she gets attacked in the bathroom. It's hilarious. It's really great. Now on to fun facts. Due to the leaks, this had multiple endings, and one of them was that Haley, Neb's roommate, and Derek, her boyfriend, were the killers, and their whole operation was funded by Mrs. Loomis. Randy still would have died, but he would have he died because he took a job as Gail's cameraman, which is a notoriously cursed position. Yes. One thing I forgot to add uh, about an iconic scene is the scene where Haley and... Sid miraculously escaped the cop car that they're trapped in because after she is attacked the same night as Cece Walker's death, she is taken to the station. They give her two police details who follow her everywhere, and it's very invasive on her life. But when more murders start to pile up, she is whisked away by these two cops with Haley, her roommate, who she's trying to protect. And similar to, I still know what you did last summer, the Moesha character, <laughs> she's like trying to keep her roommate alive and like protected from her fucking evil curse. But instead, Ghostface shows up, kills the two cops, and then drive—and somehow the cops drive into a construction zone as they're dead. It knocks everybody unconscious. But Sid wakes up. She has to crawl across Ghostface to get out of the car because they have, like, the child locks on the cop cars crawls out he miraculously doesn't wake up she tries to open the door for Haley on the outside doesn't work Haley has to climb through you think she's gonna die she doesn't yet they get out and they realize and never wants to like desperately wants to take off the mask to like figure out who the ghostface killer is she's convinced to run away and she should have fucking run away but she didn't run away after like a bit of like a back and forth she runs back to the car ghostface is missing she turns around ghostface is behind Haley. throat slit super dead that's the end of that Anyway, back to fun facts. This motherfucking cast is bonkers. We have Jada Pickett-Smith as Maureen Evans. Omar Epps as Phil Stevens, because as part of the killer's MO, he's killing people who have the same names as the original Woodsboro people. So Maureen, obviously, Phil Stevens, Steve, um, Matthew Lillard's character. Josh Jackson is just a film class buddy. He lives. Timothy Oliphant, Mickey, he's the bestie. And one of his first big on-screen roles Jerry O'Connell is the boyfriend Derek he was I'll get into that in a second they have the amazing get of Laurie Metcalf as mm-hmm. Laurel mm-hmm. as local reporter Debbie Salt who ends up being Mrs. Loomis Billy's mom
1: you will have a Roseanne connection in my movie as well
4: I look forward to it Rebecca Gayhart who plays a sorority sister who is trying to entice Sydney to join their sorority, Gayhart actually auditioned for the role of Tatum Riley in the first Scream, Rose McGowan's character. Really? And auditioned multiple times for Scream 2 for the rules of Cece, Haley, and Maureen before obtaining her eventual role. And Portia de Rossi is also in this. Many of the actors involved, including Campbell Cox, Sarah Michelle Gellar, and, sorry, I have to say all of Sarah Michelle Gellar's name for some reason, of course. and Jerry O'Connell were all starring in their own TV show at the time, which allowed the production a very limited amount of availability to schedule shooting. Sarah Michelle Gellar was in between filming Buffy the Vampire Slayer and had just finished working on the other Williamson-penned film that we're going to be talking about, I Know What You Did Last Summer. Despite the hectic scheduling, Gellar admitted in an interview that she agreed to be in Scream 2 without having read the script because of the success of the first Scream, which just tuck that little nugget in the back of your ear because that comes back into play a little bit later on in terms or in regards to its release date. Laurie Metcalf had just finished her nine-year run on Roseanne when she began to work on Scream, so it was like her first big thing post Roseanne. And to obtain the role of Derek, Jerry O'Connell and other candidates had to audition by performing the scene where he where he sings "I Think I Love You."
1: By the way, can I tell a fun story about Jerry O'Connell? Yes, please. He is a gem on Twitter, and recently he's he, also a huge Bravo fan. I love him. He and Re- Rebecca Romaine's daughters are like I uh, think they're preteens. The other day, he recorded... Oh, he's you know, like, this is music! And he's, Listen! Like, blasting Prince and singing, and like, his daughters are just like, Dad, no! Like, covering their ears, so embarrassed. And I just love that Big Dad energy that Jerry O'Connell has. So, shout out.
4: What the surviving cast was up to. So, Neve Campbell, there wasn't much downtime between Scream 1 and 2, so she didn't get up to much, but it is worth noting that after Scream 2, she goes directly into Wild Things. That was the only thing I really wanted to touch on. So there were various titles considered for the sequel at different points in the film's production, especially considering that the script kept getting leaked. So they came up with a variety of different titles like Scream Again, Scream Louder, and Scream the Sequel, and then they finally decided to use just Scream 2. Neff Campbell had always been contracted to reprise her role as Sidney Prescott in a potential sequel before filming had even begun on the regular Scream, because her character was the only one guaranteed to survive and lead into a new film. Craven had difficulties passing Scream to through the MPAA to receive even just an R rating to begin with in order to make the com- in order to make the film commercially viable. He sent in eight different cuts along the way, including having to recut Omar Epps being stabbed in the ear from three times to one. And also the extended scene of Randy's death ended up being originally he was to have his throat slashed and they ended up just having him be pulled into the van and have it be largely unseen. Craven's reasoning was that the parts of the film that they wished to keep would be more acceptable when the when viewed with the enhanced violence but the MPAA kept for, kept shooting them down and eventually had to grant Scream 2 an R rating even with for a more violent cut. The MPAA granted Scream 2 an R rating, even though it was a more violent cut than they wanted. It was just sort of where they ended up. If they could get, It was more of like a compromise where it was like, oh, if we could get you down from like three stabs to one and from zero from one throat slash to zero, then we'll give you an R rating. So it wasn't really quite where they wanted it to be. It was still too violent, but they gave it to him anyway. Scream 2 premiered on December 10th at Grauman's Chinese Theater, followed by the general release on December 12th, less than a year after the release of Scream. After the unexpected success of the first Scream in 97, Scream 2 was considered such a box office threat that James Bond, Tomorrow Never Dies, and James Cameron's future hit Titanic were both moved from their release date of December 12th to December 19th to not face the film as competition.
3: Wow.
4: Scream 2 enjoyed a financial success on par with Scream, despite its rapid production schedule and its issues with script rewrites. Scream 2 made $32 million its opening weekend, a $27 million increase over the regular Scream, and went on to make $101 million in the U.S., and as of 2011, a worldwide lifetime gross of $172 million. With $33 million, Scream 2 broke the December opening weekend records, and until December 15th of 2000 was finally replaced by What Women Want.
1: What a movie to replace it.
4: I know. <laughs> like the lesser. Could not be Nancy weirder. Myers movie. Yeah. Could not be a more random replacement. in like several years later. So they held on to like a highest grossing December watermark for a very long time. And considering that it's R, it's a big deal, especially when yeah. things like, you know, I don't know, like Deadpool, it's like a huge deal if it makes a ton of money because it's R rating. But I, I think it's also because they can't account for like the kids that sneak in and that kind of shit. But yeah, widely. A huge success in every way shape or form which is obviously why it would greenlit the third one I still think it's a great great sequel with an amazing cast and I think the Scream franchise is probably one of the better horror movie franchises if you the trilogy let's say and I actually even think that the MTV the first season of the MTV show was actually quite good and it was trying to do something different and it was definitely more updated but uh, sort of like I said before, it, it's season two, it, like, loses its mind. You're like, okay, never mind. Forget it. But the legend still leaves on, and I feel like they still try to always, like, reboot it and bring it back all the time. But it doesn't still – it doesn't have the same, like, punch as the original did.
1: So I covered I Know What You Did Last Summer, which is another Kevin Williamson film. It was released October 17th, 1997, and is based on the 1973 novel written by Lois Duncan, who also
4: wrote Killing Mr. Griffin, which we talked about. I was going to say in- – Teen thrillers episode. An- another appearance from our sexy teen thrillers episode yeah, between wild things and this this is like I think within our first two seasons
1: of this podcast we all covered like all of Kevin Williamson's territory from the late
4: 90s and early 2000s should we just change our name to the sort of Kevin Williamson podcast we need to have a Dawson's Creek
1: episode <laughs> but sure <laughs>
4: <laughs> to complete it to, to complete really the circle complete it, so yeah yeah, yeah.
1: so he also So Lois Duncan, of course, wrote Killing Mr. Griffin, which would later become the inspiration for the movie Teaching Mrs. Tingle. So Kevin Williamson, of course, we just talked about, wrote Scream, Scream 2, wrote The Faculty, directed Teaching Mrs. Tingle, created Dawson's Creek, Vampire Diaries, and the following. He's also the producer of subsequent Scream movies and had a big part in the production of Ding, 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 Halloween H2O, even though he is not formally credited with anything. It was directed by Jim Gillespie, who's not known for directing much else besides Detox, uh, starring Sylvester Sloan What? Adam. Yeah. What, what is what is happening? I know, I know. And then producers included Neil H. Moritz, who's known for producing Cruel Intentions, the Urban Legend franchise, oh. Fast and the Furious franchise, wow. and a billion other things. I couldn't even, like, begin this list after that.
4: But Cruel Intentions is a nice tie because I yes. feel like it shares some of, like, the sexy sex vibes. I mean, and two vibes. Of the main
1: characters in this movie are, say, right. Ma- you know, Sarah Michelle Gellar or Ryan Phillippe. And then Eric Fake, who later went on to serve as co-president of Lionsgate, and later president of Summit Media, which has made the Twilight films, Hunger Games, and the Divergent series. And he also produced Slackers, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and all the Step Up movies, and The Spy Who Dumped Me. I'm
4: pretty sure he would like you to forget the Divergent series. That is
1: probably true, as they (laughs) never finished it. (laughs) Anywho!
4: Wait, no, I thought they did, but it was just, like, condensed. So
1: so they shelved it into, they were gonna originally push it into a TV movie, and Uh, then it was gonna premiere on Freeform, and then it never premiered. I'm pretty sure it's still to this day been shelved which like you don't hear about as many of those in 2019 i feel like that is something that happened a lot more like 10 years ago plus but like for that big of a franchise and they thought like 175 million dollars was enough to declare it like this couldn't be financially doable anymore which i get it made 100 million dollars less but like 175 million dollars is not it's not nothing it's not nothing anywho the plot of this movie opens with the goth metal band typo negatives cover of seals and Crofts' 70s soft rock classic summer breeze and we see a guy looking at some sort of jewelry pocket watch locket type thing drinking on a cliff above the ocean looking like he's about to commit suicide fireworks then start going off in the nearby town because it's fourth of july weekend Sarah michelle geller plays helen who just won the local beauty pageant and oh has right aspirations to move to new york and become an actress Her best friend is Jennifer Love Hewitt, and her name is Julie. She's smart because she's brunette, and she just got a scholarship and aspires to become a lawyer. Freddie. Yeah, she's not
4: the hot one because yeah. she's a brunette.
1: She's slightly less hot. <laughs> Freddie Prince Jr. plays Ray, Julie's boyfriend, and is the calm, popular guy who comes from a more working class background. I was say, like,
4: he's the poor. He's the
1: poor. <laughs> and Ryan Felipe plays Barry, Helen's boyfriend, who's the typical jerk, popular guy, and comes from, of course, the rich family in the small town. And
4: also is possibly on roids. <laughs>
1: we will get into that later. They are all at some beach party. Emily, his neck
4: is bulging throughout this
3: movie. <laughs>
1: we'll talk more <laughs> but yes they're all at a beach party dancing to some like punk ska band uh, <laughs> that's that's
3: the, most, 19, saying, that's the most 1997
4: i was say that's the most 1997 sentence you could have said, other than it's the Aquabats would be the <laughs> other part of it.
1: We're also introduced in, uh, to some minor characters at this party. Um, we're introduced to Elsa, who's played by Bridget Wilson, who uh, <laughs> who shout out to our J-Lo episode. Cause, and she played Veronica Bar- Vaughn and Billy Madison. She's now married to tennis pro Pete Sampras. She plays Helen's resentful older sister, Elsa, who runs the family business, which is a downtown boutique.
4: And we are also... Introduced it's like a department store. To,
1: yeah, yeah. And we're introduced to Max, the not-so-popular kid who harbors a crush on jewelry, played by Roseanne Connection, Johnny Galecki. Oh, yes. wow. Yes. I forgot. Jennifer, Lew- Jennifer Love Hewitt and Johnny Galecki were old friends because uh, they acted, they were living near each other around the late 80s when he was in, I believe, Christmas Vacation. And she was friends with his little sister. And so when they needed someone for this role, he had just finished Roseanne in 1997. And uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt suggested he play that part.
3: Whoa. Because they've
1: known each other for a while.
4: That doesn't surprise me considering that they were probably both living in like a Burbank apartment complex where they probably. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Oakwood.
1: Yep. After Julie turns on a date offer from Max and Barry decides to start a fight with him because he's oh, yeah. drunk and potentially on steroids, the four main friends, Julie, Ray, Helen, and Barry, decide to leave the party and go towards a more secluded area near the cliffs we saw in the beginning.
4: I mean, definitely not doing anything for that aggressive asshole stereotype yeah. that will follow Ryan Felipe. It comes
1: out of fucking nowhere. It's not like, it's not like- You're totally right. Jennifer Love Hewitt. It, he's, he's, he's off dating Sarah Michelle Geller. like what does he have to fight about and no he's
4: definitely one of those dudes who will fight anybody at any time for no reason at all <laughs> sorry and I know you're going to talk about this but he like trust it he chokes someone he, in this movie yes, yes
1: but you get also get this.
4: but you get the feeling that he has choked multiple people oh, yeah, no, in the no, no, past no, no.
1: he uses that as a threat and it's not no matter if it's a man or a woman not really he already. just
4: his baseline is I will choke you
1: I will choke you motherfucker <laughs> Julie, Ray, Helen, and Barry decide to leave the party and go towards a more secluded area near the cliffs we saw in the beginning. After a night of fun and drinking on the beach where I think Julie loses her V-card on the sand with Ray.
4: Unclear! Unclear!
1: She's just kind of like, okay, and he's like, are you sure? And (laughs) I'm like... (laughs) It's never implied. It's never said, but you see them kind of like closer after. <laughs> oh, no, I back
4: to the car exactly, and in the car too, they're kind of like lovey dovey. Yeah, and I, mean, I always read it that she did lose her virginity, and that's why the murders happen, or yes, like that's what the movie yes, is trying yes, to tell yes, me. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So
1: on the way back... At least we're
4: aligned. Yes,
1: on their way back, Ray is driving Barry's car because he's way too fucking drunk. Ray starts standing... <laughs> Another thing that we
4: assume happens often, the way that everybody is very at ease about it.
1: So Barry starts standing in the car and dancing out of the sunroof and spills booze on all over everyone because he fucking sucks. Isn't he drinking
4: like Jack Daniels <laughs> yeah, or something terrible? Yeah, he's drinking
1: a bottle of something awful. And as Ray is trying to clean up and everyone else is, he doesn't see that a man is crossing the road and he
4: hits the guy. Sorry. Abandoned road, abandoned yeah, it's cliffside, like a cliffside road. road so- so You're we'll not crossing the we'll street. We'll go
1: into this later. This was filmed in Sonoma County and Jenner, and, like, those roads on Highway 1. We'll go into that more later, and, like, I've been at those points, and there's like, uh, at night, there is almost no one there. So, anyway, um, so he doesn't see this man is crossing and he hits him. As the friends, you know, stop the car and are like, holy shit, what do we do? Because this guy is unconscious, at least. They decide, they're trying to decide what to do with the body. Max appears, and they pretend that they've stopped the car and are on the side of the road because Barry's sick from drinking. He drives off and Barry (laughs) believes that they should do away with the body and not report anything to the police because it will jeopardize their futures because they're all about to go to college
4: see this is the logic point in most of these movies where I have to humbly disagree with them this
1: is like white privilege like there's just so much here where I'm like yeah yeah you say that and yet
4: and yet y'all white (laughs) you're probably fine
1: They take the body, and as they're about to dump it off a dock, the man wakes up. They still push him down and think that he's dead. They make a pact to never speak about what happened and begin to distance themselves from one another. Flash forward to a year later, Julie's in college in Boston, pale, sickly looking, and has terrible grades. Helen is back working at her family store after a brief stint in New York that didn't work out. Barry also goes to the same college as Julie and is the quarterback on the football team, but they don't run in the same circles. And Ray is working as a fisherman. Because he's poor. Because he's poor, which he says is, quote, fulfilling his prophecy, since that's what his estranged father did as well. Julie, when she gets home from college. Bummer. Receives (laughs) a letter with no return address. Oh, God. All the letter says is, I know what you did last summer. Dun, 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 dun. Barry's first instinct, after they all get together, is that it's Max who's behind the note, since he saw them that night after threatening Max with a hook at the shipyards because <laughs> Barry's on sorry. steroids a year later. I mean, college career's got to go somewhere. I mean, sorry,
4: Emily, he's probably snorting Adderall.
1: He, at that point, he's he's on a, se- a steady diet of Roy's Adderall. Like, it's just a cocktail. Roy,
4: Adderall, uh, pop, pop-off vodka, if, and, like, some sort of protein <laughs> shake that he got from if, GNC. If,
1: spoiler alert, he didn't die in this movie this summer. He would have died in a few years later because of some bad concoction. He would have given
4: himself a heart attack
1: yes so he tries he attacks max and threatens him max has no clue what he's talking about and they all think that the letter prank is now over because barry dealt with it later that evening. oh yeah
4: i love that everybody's like cool i'm just gonna wipe our hands of that one barry handled i was like why would you ever why would you ever trust barry to handle shit of course not he's Brandy is a, no, Barry is a fucking psycho. He's
1: a psycho. He didn't do shit. And of course, while Max, later that evening, while Max is working in like the crab room.
4: (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I would love to just hear you describe what you think fishermen do.
1: It's where they store the crabs in this one particular room. He gets killed (laughs) by that same hook, which Barry had pounded through a block of ice by a, a character that we can't really see very well yet. That same evening, Barry discovers a Polaroid of the car with the words, I know, written on it that's sticking out of his locker at the gym, and his letterman jacket is missing. He runs outside the gym to see a car race off. He tries to chase the car, and when the car turns around, speeding towards Barry, he hits him. A figure gets out of the car wearing a hat, slick, and boots, looking like a traditional fisherman, threatening to kill him with a hook. Barry ends up in the hospital. And the friends decide that they need to figure out who's doing this so they can start to research the guy they killed, or allegedly killed, David Egan. Egan had graduated from their high school in 92, and had his his high school sweetheart died in a car accident a year prior to the summer's events around the area where they hit David. David had been the driver of the car, and they realized that he had a tattoo of his high school sweetheart's name on his arm, the guy that they dumped. Helen and Julie decide to go visit the family's house under the false pretense that their car broke down. And that's oh, this scene is
4: so creepy. David's
1: sister, Missy, played by Anne Heche, ding, ding, yep. ding, while they begin to ask her about... Ding, ding!
4: Oh, because of the psycho? Yeah,
1: yeah. She came up earlier, yeah. While they begin to ask her about her brother's death, she mentions meeting one of his friends at the funeral named Billy Blue. As they leave the house, Helen goes home and we... But she see- also
4: alludes that they have, like, an affair yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, which
1: it comes up... Well, she on- has, like, an affair
4: with, like, an 18-year-old.
1: Right. We'll go in more about that later. Helen goes home and we see the same fisherman enter her family's house and hide in her closet after an argument with Elsa... She wakes up the next morning, uh, and she's supposed to go be in the parade because she was last year's pageant queen. Her hair has been chopped off, and her tiara is on her head.
4: Oh, right. And, And like, I remember her getting her hair chopped off was, like, the worst thing that could ever happen to her.
1: Exactly. And so the words soon are written in lipstick on her mirror, and while Julie drives over to go console her, she keeps hearing noises coming from her trunk. She stops the car, finds in the trunk, Max's corpse, wearing Barry's jacket, covered in live crabs. When she runs to get her and Helen and Barry, they come back to a basically empty trunk. They then go find Ray, where Barry confronts him. Well, wait. Believing. This is also
4: the part where, you almost forgot, where Jennifer Love Hewitt stands in the middle of the street and, street and screams, what are you waiting for? Yeah, huh?
1: just out there in the open.
4: And just boobs. Just, just so, boobs. Just her giant boobs everywhere.
1: Everywhere. They great go,
4: boobs. Great boobs. She is great boobs. I'm just a hater. Oh. I wish any of my weight gain would go towards my boobs, <laughs> but my body is hateful. <laughs>
1: They then go find Ray, where Barry confronts him, believing he's behind this. Because of course, Barry's convinced that Ray is forever jealous of his rich boyness.
4: (laughs) Then tell. No, you fucking paranoid psycho. No one wants your fucking. Your your Adderall addiction and Roid Rage Bill. On your shrinking balls.
1: Ray tells them that he's received a note as well, um, and Julie goes. Up oh yeah,
4: that moment was like so dramatic. He's like, "I also got a note," but everybody <laughs> thinks that it might be Ray.
1: They think it's Ray because he's had there, like everyone else has had real shit happen to them, and
4: he's. I said, Ray's like, like, "I got a note." <laughs> I got a note. <laughs> Jennifer Love Here's like, "I got a fucking dead body in my Corolla. What are you doing? Get the fuck out of here, with your fucking note, asshole."
1: Julie goes to talk to Missy again, where she begins to try and tell her what really happened to her. Her brother that night but missy then tells her that she believes her brother committed suicide by way of jumping off the cliff where the car accident happened and shows julie the suicide note he left which is written the same handwriting and styles the other notes and basically says i still remember what happened last summer i don't remember the exact words when julie tries to tell her that it was a threat not a suicide note and tells her where they they hit David's body and that he has a tattoo with her name on his arm the guy that they hit missy angler, angrily tells her that he didn't have a tattoo and like tells her to go fuck off Julie figures out that Anne Heche is
4: truly the creepiest and most unsettling unsettling. person. Even though there's a man with a goddamn hook hand trying to murder everybody. Anne Heche is the fucking it's like Southern this is
1: right after her alien abduction. No.
4: No, no, no. I think you're right. I totally think you're right. I didn't look it up (laughs) obviously. Before
1: dating Ellen DeGeneres but after alien abduction. But that was still
4: the like oh Anne Heche is taking a of sorts and but I want to
1: say Six Days and Seven Nights may have come out the year later I don't know why I know Anne Heysha's but I also so now.
4: I have seen Six Days and Seven Nights more times than I would care too. to admit it's not a drive-in but, movie <laughs> more on that in a minute but I just think that Anne Heysha's scenes are also the ones that don't quite fit in with the movie the no. most because it's like the southern gothic like i live in a swamp yeah, kind yeah. of vibe and it just it feels more like it belongs it's like a deleted scene from wild things that's it's what feel, i think it feels
1: like wild things or to be honest it feels like something where it would be an even more fictionalized thing happening like some sort sure. of like, phenomenon or like alien or something like, oh she's she's like so checked she's out. in the happening right <laughs> like she seems so checked out Compared to the rest of them. Like, it doesn't... Like, something happened to her.
4: Similar to the mom in sleepaway camp who's, like, making a choice that literally nobody else is making. That's what's happening with Anne Uh
1: So... They figure out, so Julie then figures out they didn't kill David, they killed someone else. After doing some <laughs> slow Netscaping, because, hello,
4: Dial-Up. <laughs> I've got nine of these Netscape CDs that like, equal 45 minutes of internet browsing time.
1: Lenovo, I think, I, there are a lot of 1997 ThinkPads featured in this movie, and a lot of slow Clearly Netscaping. a sponsor, yeah. Yeah, and shout out, I do have friends who work for Lenovo. They make a great product, but...
4: Emily, yeah, as somebody who used a Lenovo in college, I could not regret the decision more.
1: <laughs> um, but she figures out that David's girlfriend's dad, Ben Willis, survived the crash that killed his daughter. She then thinks it's Ben Willis that they killed instead of
2: David, David Egan. Egan.
1: While this all took place, Helen and Barry are at the parade where they ride on a float. Helen thinks that she's seen the fishermen in the parade crowd, Barry jumps off and goes finds this guy only to figure out. That oh right, because he's serving
4: as her bodyguard. Yeah,
1: exactly. Because so he's got to do something with the steroid. Yes, because
4: roids equal security.
1: <laughs> he just realizes this is an older dude, and well, he's like, like, "Oh, I'm
4: down to fight." Like you know, that's the he, only sort of pretense he surrounding. This guy mm-hmm. He beats. The, he scares the shit and, and beats the like, fuck oh, out of I people. The
1: man was about to have a heart attack <laughs> legitimately. I'm like, oh my god, this. Is-
4: you guys are about to have another fucking murder on your hands. As- manslaughter at that oh my god
1: moments later helen sees another fisherman this time a real one um in the parade crowd and later during the pageant helen is on stage while barry watches from the balcony she sees him (gasps) Mm -hmm. with the fisherman behind him with the hook Mm -hmm. about to kill barry she screams and stops the pageant when a police officer goes up with her to check out what happened barry and the fisherman are nowhere to be seen Helen is then escorted by the same police officer home, where they're led to drive through an alley because a sign indicates. Another scream
4: too. I mean, this is like a parallel yeah, scream like, to scream too. Like of being trapped in a yep, cop car. Yep, you think same, yep, you tropes. think you're safe. You're not safe. You're Construction zone.
1: Yep. If someone leave, leaves the car, they're not coming back.
4: Mm-mm. And you're fucking car. trapped back there with That's that weird right. grate and your child That's lock.
1: That's right. Cop stops the car to help what looks like someone having car troubles, but in fact, it's the fisherman who proceeds to kill him and go after Helen, breaks the car window to ga- glass Sorry, I'm debt. still in
4: shock that Sarah Michelle Geller's name is fucking Helen I, in this movie. Well, it's,
1: it's all the names. So I figured this out. I was like, why did they have such old, like older names for, for like 1997? And it's because the book they kept the only few things that they kept from the book are the characters names so that's why julie was a very 70s name and helen i have some friends named helen but it's sure definitely a bit of an like older name and
4: ray and barry like barry who knew
1: a popular guy named like barry in 1997 i don't so. even
4: know if i went to school with a barry right. so a ray sure maybe a julie okay definitely yeah. but a helen
1: and a barry and so it's because of the this book was published in 1973 okay thank you for clarifying a lot of the plot changes and in fact lois duncan was not happy about that oh Um, she was really disappointed because her daughter was murdered in (gasps) real life so she wrote a book about it in the late 80s lois duncan has still since passed away but she was really unhappy that her book went from being more of a psychological thriller to being a slasher movie because of the nature of her her daughter's murder
4: how did, her daughter, how did her daughter die? She
1: died by way of someone, like, killing her. And I don't know <gasps> all the gruesome details, but, yeah.
4: Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Dang. I know. It's kind of a bummer. Yeah, that makes this movie not as fun. Damn, that sucks. I know. <laughs> She, anyway, back to this terrible I, movie. Sorry, um,
1: <laughs> Helen escapes, runs to the family store where Elsa's closing up. Elsa lets her in. Helen goes upstairs to call the police. And while Elsa locks all the doors, she is killed by the fisherman. Helen runs out the store into another alleyway. She's, like, sent, shot out.
4: But she's, like, playing, like, whole. She's playing some sort of, like, 90s grunge rock so loud that she doesn't hear her right. sister get murdered exactly. downstairs. And I think of all of, <laughs> Of everything in this movie, the scariest part to me was when Helen is in that room where there's well, a bunch of mannequins.
1: There are so many murders that happen in this movie that are could have been avoided if there hadn't been so much fucking noise around. This is
4: true. But I feel like the mannequin death, though, was or the mannequin yeah. pursuit was definitely one of the scariest it things. was
1: definitely one of the scariest things. She runs out of the store into another alleyway before she can make it out of said alleyway to the main street. Because she's running side side. towards
4: the fireworks where she can see the parade, which and I great. think makes her death so fucking tragic, just like her boyfriend who, even though he's righted out, having to watch your boyfriend get slaughtered in front of you as yes. you're accepting something is a different kind of yes. hell.
1: Yes. She is slashed to death by the fishermen, and her screams are drowned out by the fireworks and nearby parade noise.
4: This is why fireworks are the fucking devil. Outlaw They're, fireworks. For sure. Not only for my dog's sake, but for everybody else's sake.
1: I mean, they cause more harm than good.
4: They make everybody feel anxious, and I know... Todd would be upset because that man loves fireworks I just you know let's I, let's all calm down I, about I, fireworks are they really that great I don't know I don't at so. me I don't care if you think they're great
1: honestly I grew up like when I was a kid I'm not a big loud noises person and that was really like as a kid I was like a, I'm like a dog really I think is what it is I just like it really really shook me up as a kid
4: I'm a, ge- a generally anxious person so yeah. any loud sounds like Ugh!
1: that's me too and I think that's a lot of it is my anxiety and
4: especially even if I enjoy it I will still jump up and be I, like oh are are you scared? I'm like, no, it's just a physical reaction to I loud like sounds. I
1: them at a distance.
4: <laughs> at a very far distance. We have a friend that lives in a part of Oakland where everyone in her neighborhood sets it off. And she has neighbors across the street who, well, they recently set their shit on fire, which was surprising because they set off truly like an embarcadero style level of fireworks for Chinese New Year's, Fourth of July, and New Year's Eve. Yeah. And it was just one of those like matter of time kind of things.
1: Mm-mm. So back to her story.
4: <laughs> Lots of segues this episode, but I'm I'm fine with it.
1: I, and I realize I'm going way deep in this plot, but it's just such a crazy plot. But there's that, so many there's things, so to, many get things into, to get into. And I also,
4: when you're done with plot and your fun facts, I have a personal story related to. I know what you did last summer. Uh, that is like a childhood favorite story of mine to tell.
1: Amazing. Back to Julie. She goes to Ray and tells him what she's figured out, and while there, sees that he's on a boat called Billy Blue, which was the name of <laughs> Missy's boyfriend, best friend. And she thinks it's ray behind all of this and runs away from him ray's then knocked unconscious by a fisherman who's also at the dock julie thinks he's a good guy and he lets her hide in his boat and then use the phone she then sees photos and articles about her and her friends and is confronted by the same fisherman in the boat and um and is leaving the dock and it turns out of course ding 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 it's ben willis who's the guy they hit that night hence the tattoo with david's high school sweetheart's name he was there that night to avenge david for killing his daughter in the car crash after the friends hit Ben with a car and threw him in the water, he survived and went on to plot this whole killing spree. Ben tries to then kill Julie, who legends of the hidden temples are way through the <laughs> below deck area, fighting for her life. Below deck,
4: survive your own murder.
1: <laughs> at one point, she ends up in a room full of ice, used to keep the fish fresh, and in a, in a like homage to Halloween, she then discovers Barry and Helen's bodies, mm-hmm. like when Jamie Lee Curtis is in the kitchen.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Ray wakes up, from the being hit unconscious and gets on a motorboat to rescue Julie. Yeah, and it's get on suddenly Ben's boat. like
4: a very spry and alert person like, for wait. having recently yeah. had a concussion.
1: <laughs> senseless.
4: No, the totally, totally okay. As if it never happened. Never
1: happened. Able to save the day. Ultimately, uses the boat's rigging on the boat that Ben and Julie are on to sever Ben's hand and throw him off the boat. Later that night, we see that Ray and Julie have reconciled and are speaking to the cops on the boat. They realize they never killed anyone, and when asked why Ben would be after them, they claim not to know. The police find Ben's hand, but don't find a body, thinking it will eventually show up because it always does, of course. No horror movies taught us otherwise. One year later, we see Julie's thriving in college and dating Ray long distance. She sees a letter in the locker room addressed to her that looks eerily similar to the letter she received in a summer prior. Turns out it's just an invite to a frat party. She goes into the locker room, showers, and then sees dun 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 written in steam on one of the windows. I still know. The movie ends with the fisherman smashing through the window, and that's it. And then we go into that cover of Hush by Deep Purple.
4: Which is really interesting because these... In the sequel, I still know it's very similar, especially the end. It's like Julie and Ray reconcile because they're sort of like on the rocks. And then she takes this random guy that she knows from college onto this trip that she, her roommate wins by answering incorrectly what the capital of Brazil is in the Bahamas. Anyway, they're dating long distance. It's not working out, yada, yada. But by the time the movie wraps up, they've gotten back together. They live together in this house. They're going to get married. But Julie, in sort of like a fake-out, because I think this is obviously a fake-out in the ending, she gets pulled underneath the bed by the fisherman.
1: Yes. So the background on this movie, Kevin Williamson had written this script many years ago, even before Scream. Huh! And after screen became such a huge hit at the box office, Columbia was like,
0: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me.
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. yeah we'll buy the rights and they rushed it into production
4: that's not totally surprising also Scream I read that script in college and I read it in broad daylight in a park and I was so fucking paranoid because the way that it's written is so scary it definitely gets your blood pumping it's like Watch out behind you, and I, I, there are points in the script where I was literally looking around, making sure that I was in a safe place because the way it just like jumps out at you, similar to the way that Shane Black writes "Kiss Kiss Bang Bang." Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. a very similar style where it's like it's talking to you directly. Right. So okay. I'm not surprised that like just based on the strength of like a script. He got something rushed and greenlit into production.
1: Yeah. So, and then Mandalay Entertainment produced the film and tasked Williamson with retooling the script so that it would have more of a 70s, 80s slasher vibe to it since that was the formula that had made Scream a hit. And like I said earlier, Lois Duncan was really opposed to her book being reworked into a slasher film because her youngest daughter was murdered by an unknown person in 1989. Wilmington changed the setting to a fishing seaside town, and his villain to a fisherman with a hook because his father was a fisherman by trade, and that's a big oh. theme in Dawson's Creek as well. Yeah, upside is a fisherman's town. A lot of people there are. It's fishermen. just so
4: weird that he is like carrying over that theme, and also it's bizarre that it wasn't shot where Dawson's Creek was shot. Yeah,
1: in fact, it was shot. It was shot in North Carolina as well. So I'll get into that. But oh, sorry, not, not in, in Wilmington. So the hook as the main weapon, has to do with the four characters in the beginning recounting the versions they've heard of the urban legend of the Hook, which is a well-known story. I'm sure all of you have heard of Variation. A couple is out for a date or whatever. They hear of a murderer on the loose. Uh, they stop the car somewhere because they have car trouble or whatever, and they keep the guy goes after to try to find someone, and this girl, is. he tells her not to open the door under any circumstances. She keeps hearing a knock, a knock, a knock, or a hook, or whatever, and then later, you know, she gets out of the car. The police come and she realizes the, the, the sound was coming from uh, like her like boyfriend being hung from a tree or whatever. Anyway, sorry. So that urban legend is what they kind of brought into the plot of this story and tried to retool it by having it kind of be a variation of that, but all these twists and turns where what you thought was right was not right and so on and so forth. And also used to foreshadow what was coming. Like Scream, a lot of this was filmed in Sonoma County because in Scream, they filmed, I'm pretty sure, like Santa Rosa and a couple of those towns where, where they filmed the high school in the downtown area. The cliff in the opening shots is actually at the Colmar Gulch in Jenner, California, which hmm. I'm pretty sure I stopped at with my mom not even knowing about this. It's a really pretty view.
4: They also- but lots of Jenner is really creepy. There right. is a cafe in Jenner that's basically like the Birds Cafe. Yes. Yes. So they have, they embrace their spooky nature. For
1: sure. And they also filmed that car crash around there as well. And the beach campfire scene, there's an old wrecked boat next to them in that scene. That was actually a boat the set design team bought in Bodega Bay and cut in half. And those are the same roads and locations that were prominently featured in the birds, which was filmed in Bodega Bay. They filmed 7 out of 10 weeks at night, which was really annoying for everyone involved, including the small towns where they were filming because, you know, they're holding up the one-lane traffic uh, area, as any of you have been on one, especially north of the city. It's all like a one-lane highway. Um, The film, they filmed most of the town shots in Shreveport, North Carolina, and Julie's College in Boston is actually Duke University. Hmm. The final showdown was filmed on a boat that was actually in the water, and they almost lost the boat while trying to dock it because of how choppy the waters were. And it was very difficult to film. They had to do it over a course of multiple nights. Gillespie, the director, wanted little to no blood in this movie, which is really obvious throughout the entire movie. Though there is slashing, you do not see that much blood. The only exception to this is the scene in which Elsa gets killed originally had zero blood, but the people, basically when they were in post production, they were like, there's no way there wouldn't be any blood splattered in this situation so they they worked it into post-production but there was otherwise very little blood and that's the thing like when Ryan Felipe gets killed she runs up there's not even like a trace of blood anywhere like and and very there are some like gruesome moments with um, Johnny Galecki's character but it's it's pretty minimal Originally, Max lived Johnny Galecki's character, but after some screenings, it was believed that there needed to be an earlier kill to establish that urgency for the friends that their lives were in danger, so they filmed that death scene in post-production. That makes sense. And then the I still know message was originally supposed to be like an email instant message, like she's getting um, a mess. She's trying to IM Ray, or Julie's IMing Ray, and then she gets a message about a frat party, and then she gets the I still know message, and then the fisherman shows up. But they've refilmed the more dramatic ending in post-production next to the set of Party of Five where Jennifer Love Hewitt huh. was filming. And it's easily noticeable because her college roommate, Dad, the woman who drives her back to her hometown um, at the beginning after the first year of college, she's only seen in a shadow silhouette outside of the showers. And then she's on the phone, I believe, with Ray, but you don't see anyone else in that scene. So sure, which yeah. makes sense. And so, in terms of reception and release, when Columbia was putting together the marketing for this film, they started using the tagline from the creator of Scream. Miramax filed a lawsuit against Columbia because (laughs) while Kevin Williamson wrote Scream, Wes Craven directed the film. And Williamson originally had asked for them to remove that before this whole lawsuit went through, but Miramax, with, like, the Weinstein brothers, showing their true colors from very early on, they continued to pursue legal action. A judge awarded Miramax an injunction that required Columbia to remove the Phrase from all their advertising and later, Miramax would win another lawsuit where they were awarded damages by Columbia. What yep, it was released October 7th, 1997, and made 125 million at the box office on a budget of 17 million. And I'm realizing that came before <laughs> Scream 2. But I know, I know what you did last summer is the sixth highest grossing Sasha film as of 2019, according to Box Office Mojo, and it received mixed reviews. which... We're comparing it favorably and unfavorably to Scream, but I think that there are people who have made a point about it being that, you know, it is a movie that, despite it having a young, hot cast of teenagers and it, you know, happening in a small town, they are very different. Like, Scream is a slasher film, but half of the fun is the constant reference to the tropes and stereotypes in those films and it is kind of mostly horror, but it's also there's a comedy element. Whereas I know what you did last summer is really not a funny movie, at least not intentionally. If no, you're Ryan Felipe wrote it out.
4: Perfect. Performance, yes.
1: And it currently holds a forty-two percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes.
4: I didn't say this earlier, but Scream Two has an eighty-two percent on oh, Rotten really? Tomatoes. Yeah, it's always been very high. It was very well received. It still is really well regarded. I again, I feel like it's difficult to ask anybody what their favorite Scream is, but I think Scream 2 is up there for some people as their favorite Scream.
1: For sure. Just a few more facts and then I'll be done, but some fun connections to Kevin Williamson's universe to help Barry's drunk ass, to get him off of fighting Johnny Galecki, Helen suggests that they go down to a Dawson's Beach, oh, which God, Dawson's Creek reference... Sarah Michelle Gellar mentions wanting to be on Guiding Light one day in her future acting career, which is really funny because pre-Buffy, she was starring on All My Children. Mm-hmm. And then uses the town. That's where she got her start. Exactly. And Sarah Michelle Gellar, at one point when she's insulting the cop who's making fun of her for, for telling them that they saw, she saw her boyfriend get killed, she uses the fictional town of Mayberry as an insult to the police officer. And that's be- really funny because Mayberry is, in fact, Wilmington, North Carolina, where Dawson Creek was filmed. And this is where Sarah Michelle Galler and Freddie Prince Jr. met on set. Later, became good friends, and then later fell in love and got married. Oh, so, so there's still connection. Married. Final observations: Barry is an asshole who literally chokes Julie into swearing that they'll take his death, the, the um, wh- who we believe is David Egan's death, to the grave. I also think that he's on. I don't know what. we said Adderall. We're going steroids. with steroids.
4: Well, so I think that in high school, it's definitely steroids. Yes. And then I think in college, it's Adderall and, and steroids, steroids and vodka, and pawbob, did, to be specific, but. We,
1: yeah. They did want to cast a 6'2 football type, and instead they got 5'10 Ryan Felipe, who, like, we've seen in the scene, I mean, he like, has abs. Still, he has abs as fuck, but, like, he's not a ripped guy from, like, the biceps. He's not bulging, so. No, he okay. doesn't
4: look like he would play football. Soccer, sure. Football, mm, I don't know. Maybe. Possibly. The
1: the final connection... Quarterback? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Even
4: Tom Brady is more yoked than him, and I hate Tom Brady. I hate
1: Tom Brady as well. The final thing that I thought was really sweet and connects us to H2O, um, Jennifer Love Hewitt had just uh, appeared with Jamie Lee Curtis in a movie called House Arrest, which I used to see all the time on, like, Cinemax and stuff. What? Yeah, so it's a movie where, like, she is one of many kids at school who are sick and tired of their parents, so... They put them on house arrest and, like, lock them all in the basement. and like. Oh, my God. Married to Kevin Polak, and they're thinking about getting a divorce. No, I was going to –
4: okay, so I thought that was um, Divorce Coach or whatever, that movie with Dennis – not Dennis Miller. Uh, Dennis Leary? Uh, no, the blonde one. Uh, fuck. Yeah, Dennis Leary. Hey, Dennis no, you're Leary. right. Yeah, Rescue yeah, yeah. Me. Yeah. Anyway, so I would always get that movie confused with House Arrest, but I've seen House Arrest, not Divorce Coach or whatever the fuck that movie is that I'm thinking of.
3: Yeah, there
1: are a lot of randos in this movie. I saw it years ago, but they, she, they were both filming movies in North Carolina at the same time. So, so Jennifer Love Hewitt was filming this, and I believe um, Jamie Lee uh, Curtis was not filming H2O just yet, but was filming something else. Jennifer Le- Love Hewitt said that Jamie Lee Curtis came over to the soundstage to wish her luck on her first horror movie, and would come by every other, come by over every day after that to give her a hug. Aww. So, I what just a class this, act. I, I really do love her. I love that she's married to Christopher Guest. Yep, I just,
4: another I, entry from this season. I
1: mean, I just think they'd be great dinner party guests.
4: I just want to give them a hug. For sure. Or not, I don't know. I feel like I'm definitely sternly in the camp of, like, never meet your heroes. So I'm fully happy of living with whatever illusion that I may or may not have that's accurate. So my fun I Know What You Did Last Summer story is very brief, but also is around the same time as Scream because fifth, sixth grade was around the time that I was starting to really get into horror movies. And I had a horror movie slumber party around Halloween with some friends. It was either fifth or sixth grade. I cannot remember. But whenever it was, it was also my dad's weekend to watch me. And I had these girlfriends over. We watched this movie. We were all so terrified. I banished my father in sort of like a dramatic way to like leave us alone and be girls. So in the time... That we were watching this movie, and, and mind you, it was like all the lights off. It's October. We have popcorn. We've got a bunch of sleeping bags. We're all like packed into my living room. My dad takes it upon himself to dress up like the fucking fisherman, oh and my so God. so we had a living room the way that it, it was like our house is kind of seventies ish in the sense that we had like a living room that you take two steps and go into like a deeper living room, and we had big sliding glass doors that led into our backyard. And I don't know. I mean, it was Burbank, so like. To, heads or tails, like our door might be locked or not, you know, that kind of thing. So I guess the sliding glass doors were open. My dad entered from the outside very, very quietly and at a crucial moment towards the end, like within like the last five minutes before the shower scene, but prior to them actually ending the boat ride scene was when my dad decided to enter. And he came in with like a knife hook hand and scared the absolute fuck out of me and four other friends and he thought it was the funniest shit he'd ever done was just totally psyching us out and the only thing that compares to that is my friend Marianne's brother one time wore a hockey mask and scared the out of us, not watching a Jason movie, but just like watching a scary movie in general, and just like put pasta sauce on like the hockey mask to make it look like blood. I'm just like oh, I'm fucking here to kill you. Like I don't understand what's wrong with men, but that's terrifying. And please stop doing it. It's
1: because they've never had to grow up in a world where they were constantly in fear for their fucking life.
4: Yes, I'm sorry that I have to. Car- well, now I carry a knife, so you pull that shit on me, you're you're you might you might get stabbed. I don't know. I'm yeah, not like I'm not liable.
1: This is. Why I say women are obsessed with true crime? It is because we have been our whole life. Watch out for this. Watch out for that. And that gives us an outlet to find out what happens. How does it play out when exactly situation happens?
4: Even though we're not technically a true crime podcast, isn't every podcast hosted by women technically a true crime podcast? Dabble in it for sure because you need to know the who, what, where, when, why so that you can avoid it in the future and also tell your friends what to look out for. And now we'd love to welcome a very special guest to the pod, Alyssa Sanchez, friend of the pod, friend of mine, from a sketch group that we both work for, Killing My Lobster in San Francisco. We were recently in a show together over the summer and bonded over our horror movie love, and I thought that this would be a great time to bring her on as she is a bastion of knowledge. Hello, Alyssa! Welcome! Hello! Thanks for, happy Happy Halloween, Halloween. spooky. (laughs) Thanks for joining us this evening for a very scary episode. Oh, God. Sorry, I can't stop the voice. It just kind of, like, happens as soon as October starts.
1: It's contagious. I mean, you started it last week <laughs> during our recording of one of our other episodes, and I've been going with it, both, like, verbally and in written word, if you've noticed our previews <laughs> for each episode.
4: I have noticed your handiwork. <laughs> just like a serial killer, you just use, like, the uh, exchanging cap locks O's is- to make precision, it extra spooky.
1: Precision, Margot. Precision.
4: Well, since Halloween this year is on a Thursday, there's, like, Halloween parties going on that just happened this past weekend and will happen on November 1st and 2nd, which, I don't know, do you have any strong feelings about Halloween parties post-October?
2: I feel like that's kind of, uh, like, anticlimactic. (laughs) Yeah. Even, Even if, like, I would say next year, well, actually, next year won't be the true test, because next year's a leap year, so that means... Halloween will be on a Saturday. Yes. So we won't be in that awkward position of, like, Halloween's on a Friday. Do we do a full weekend before, or do we do, like, Friday the 31st and then November 1st? Also, we're encroaching a little bit on Dia de los Muertos territory. Yes. Well, yes.
4: Well, I think that having it on a Saturday, I don't think that'll, it'll be like holiday parties where people will have it like all of the weekends leading up to it being on a Saturday because Saturday will be like the most coveted Halloween party. So you better bring it with your party. But if you just want to have like a get together where you get to see your friends' costumes or if they're doing multiple costumes, one of them, then that could be a way to do it. But um, more interestingly, I want to know what everyone is dressing up as. I'll see you go first because I already know the answer. (laughs)
2: Margaret's really excited about this, and I'm also really excited about this. Um, Last night, I went as Daria. um,
3: Amazing. And
2: I encouraged, slash forced my fiancé to (laughs) Trent. Thank you guys. God, uh, Do you remember
1: Trent with friend. Uh, do, do we remember? Uh, do we remember um, brother, much course, like Robin Hood, I had, had a crush on, on Trent. The podcast probably
4: remember. Oh, totally. yeah. I mean, we're Emily and I are still writing Trent Daria fan fiction oh, because in the proper sure. timeline, yes. she would have ended up with him.
1: Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. Fuck everything Without else that happened. Without
4: How did your fiance get the perfect triangle goatee?
2: That I I give myself most of the credit for that. So he actually has black hair, but his beard is, is obviously not jet black, like trans. So uh, I very lovingly, painstakingly shaved that triangle, and then I put mascara in it. Wow. Oh, wow. You are an artist, ma'am. <laughs> Craft.
4: Artiste. <laughs> All right, Emily, what are you dressing up as?
1: Well, as you know... I dyed my hair pink (laughs) and so my Elizabeth Holmes costume may or may not be happening we'll see but I think Ah. I I know I know (laughs) so maybe Margot may have a wig so so we're gonna check that out after the recording but if not I will either be girl rock star emoji because she has pink hair so it's basically like kind of pink hair David Bowie a little bit because it's got the lightning face paint or I was thinking Frenchie from Greece
4: Oh, I, I nominate Frenchie over Rockstar Emoji, but we'll find you a wig. Alyssa, you do a good Elizabeth Holmes impression, right?
2: That's right, Marco. <laughs> um, in fact, yes, I believe you've seen me do my Elizabeth Holmes <laughs> on stage before. Um oh. Emily, you go for home. <laughs> Alyssa I her was trial, highly impressed. her trial is gonna be delayed and take so long that you could probably still do it next year and still be relevant. That's true. That's true. That court
4: case will take a very long time.
1: But I do have a black yeah. turtleneck that I'd like to get use of. So yeah, maybe. you gotta
4: you gotta tuck that hair in there <laughs> real yep, tight. Yep,
1: yep. I do have do a hairnet somewhere. A, I have crazy eyes. So. Oh, oh yeah. yeah.
4: <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Lots
1: of eyeliner. Yeah. I mean, I've got brown eyes, but it'll it'll work, I think. And just <laughs>
4: inexplicable eyebrows. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, really kind of messy looking makeup, like lipstick that looks like you made out with someone, but not in a good way. No, um, because
4: <laughs> it's your boss.
1: <laughs> Ew! Yeah, sunny. Gross. What about you, Margot?
4: Um, my husband and I are going to dress up like Big Evie and Little Evie from the Sandy Passage yeah. documentary now episode. Yeah, I have an old, so I got like a fake fur coat when I was Margot Tandenbaum a couple years ago. I still have it. So it's mostly because I can do all of this from something in my closet. I bought like an $8 brooch on Amazon and that's pretty much all I need because I have like old vintage white pumps. I have a pair of gray sweatpants. I have a black turtleneck. So all I need to do is just be like, I was supposed to be a cause girl, but I was too tall and too talkative. So that's just gonna be me all night long.
1: That's a beautiful Lockjaw Long Island accent. I really appreciated that.
4: You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna work on it because my accent work always needs more work. Okay, well we are talking about slasher movies today, but we want to talk to you about Halloween H2O, which was a reboot or another. And tri- it's confusing because there wasn't a single Halloween movie that had the whole cast in it after Halloween 2 up until this movie. And they made a big deal about it.
2: Correct. So Correct. Yes. Um, and and also what I find interesting about this movie is that before I actually saw it, I was always under the impression that it had something to do with water.
1: <laughs> Me do. Holy shit. Alyssa. I only recently watched this movie for this podcast, and I, too, thought the same thing. Was very <laughs> confused. No water-related activities, apart no. from maybe a
2: scene filmed that's in a bathroom. Like, I get it. It's the kind of thing where, like, when they wrote it and it was on paper, they were like, yeah, this is clever. Oh, I'm and sure they
4: funny. high-fived the fuck out of each other. Yeah.
1: It just feel very late '90s to do something like that, though. To be like, let's figure out a way to put a number in something.
4: H two O, you get it. Even oh, though he dies yeah. in like a corn maze or something. Oh
1: god. <laughs> yeah, this movie is weird because it's like it is part retcon, as we I found out that word existed in the last few days. Um, but it's also part continuity. It's like it forgets. It's it, it forgets episodes or. Parts four, five, and six.
4: Well, did you see the the latest Halloween movie where it forgets everything except for the first one?
2: Yeah, it forgets every, everything yes. entirely, which yeah. is like very, very confusing. What did you think
4: of the newest Halloween movie? Did you like it?
2: Um, I I liked it. I, so here's the here's the, a little my backstory with Halloween is that please I'm actually marrying somebody whose name is Michael Meyer. Oh. oh letter away from having the same name um, and of course he loves horror too and Halloween, the Halloween franchise is his favorite so I, I had seen the original but prior to meeting him I, I really hadn't like seen or paid much attention to the rest of it so in the course of our relationship thus far I have seen basically all of them and I think I saw the, the one that just came out first so oh. I seen the old one years ago, the original. Yeah. And then I saw, I saw that one. So I didn't have the framework of like the sequel or the one that came after, um, or H two O. Like that wasn't part of. my... <laughs> or season
4: of now. the so witch. I, I, <laughs>
2: I enjoyed it, and I love. Wasn't wasn't Billy Lord in it? Am I making that up?
4: I think so. No, I think you're right. <laughs> I don't remember. Really? I mean all I remember is Judy Greer and I remember Jamie Lee yeah. Curtis as with in her weird wig and her death pit. I mean I wanted to like it because I really liked Diane McBride and I liked David Gordon Green and I thought that I thought it was going to be a little bit funnier than it was. But yeah. there was also that yeah. Halloween that Rob Zombie made too, right, which was just like a, a oh direct remake that, that was just in as well. Recently. Yeah. So which
2: I It's actually really scary. To, yeah. I had to turn it off because of like the rape scene it was like
4: too much I was like this is okay I'm done now yeah I wish I could have left when I saw it in the theater but I was with a friend and I promised not to leave her but I have seen parts of the second one like caught it here and there and it's just it is incredibly violent and a lot of it doesn't really do anything for the plot at all and it's not fun in any way and it just kind of, like, it just feels really, like, gritty and real in the way, like, it's sort of like it wants to be, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Which in a way.
1: rebooted as yeah. well. Like, have you, I, I think that, that reboot that came out, like, ten years ago was, was Rob Zombie as well.
4: I think you're right. I'm, yeah. Have you I ever watched right. yeah. any like of just, his other Rob Zombie movies?
1: Like, House on is it, like, not House
4: of Wax. Which House is,
1: of haunted yes, There we go. That's the one I've seen, too, yeah, in high school. Um, well, I don't know. Ended. Michael, he was trying to get me to,
2: to watch his stuff. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't do a whole lot for me. I did like seeing a little bit of Michael Myers' backstory as a kid. And, like, you know, you get a little bit of pathos tucking at your heartstrings for the guy. And it was great, a great little actor in it. But then once he became an adult, it was just, like, it was very tired tired i
4: was done yeah it didn't it it sort of is like the that remake of psycho with vince vaughn it's like why why is this happening to me uh do you have a favorite movie from the halloween franchise okay
2: which (laughs) which sequel was the one that had jamie the curse wasn't in it and it was the the little girl oh it's four it was like
1: it's, it's, was it 4? Yeah. Her, and her name is, in um, fact, Jamie. Oh, yeah. was just
2: outrageous. It was outrageous <laughs> and so bad that it was in, really enjoyable to watch. Like, I definitely like the sequel as well, and, and it was n- nice to get, like, an extension of it, but it's sort of, like, more of the same of the first one, but, like, only the stressful parts. Mm-hmm. So, Halloween 4 was just, like, everything you could want and, like, a can't be bad horror movie so i actually
1: enjoyed that one the most i think <laughs> <laughs> the girl who played jamie is danielle harris who oh yeah wish upon a star plays hayley no she plays yes she's Haley to katherine heigl's alexia oh. yes oh my god yes Yes. And not only that, when the new Halloween reboot came out last year, she was really angry because she was not a part of this. They, so she was not the daughter in is named Karen. So Judy Greer's character in the Halloween oh. reboot movie is is named Karen and doesn't look a thing, obviously, like Danielle Harris. And apparently, right. Harris was not happy about this, and had really hoped that she would be asked to be a part since they were reuniting a bunch of the people.
4: Well, her and Kyle Richards, because she was also upset yes. that she wasn't included yeah. in the reboots. But I think that Kyle Richards is actually going to be in the second Halloween I, that they're I, doing. I think you're
1: right, because uh, she and Jamie oh. Lee Curtis seem to be close.
4: So, I mean... That
1: poor, that poor woman, <laughs> though, as
0: a child, like was just put through absolute oh my hell God. in that movie. Have like, you guys, <laughs> have you guys like, seen...
2: Constantly, like, I mean, she must it, she must have been like on the level of Linda Blair as far as like oh needing, yeah, needing therapy after that. Yeah, you know? and just
4: having difficulty coming back to acting, which you can't blame right. them when you are doing or being subjected <laughs> to this kind of stuff. Just like the little kid from one of the Nightmare on Elm Streets, the one that takes place after like the big earthquake in eighty nine. I forget what that one's called, like New Beginnings, I believe, or New Nightmare. Right, right. That little kid apparently like had a therapist on set. Because they had to have him cry on cue, and so they told the kid that his parents died in the earthquake.
1: Oh, my God.
4: And to get him to cry, so he started bawling, and then because he couldn't stop afterwards, they re- the parents asked them to, like, have a therapist on set so that he could help process the kid's emotions. And the kid, I don't think, acts uh, at all anymore. I feel like he's, like, an engineer, like, a quiet life, that kind of thing. This
1: just, like, feels so much like, I was telling you last episode, listening to episode podcast episodes about the Wizard of Oz and Judy Garland and here like what that poor Uh, girl went through and Shirley Temple like as a small child they used to tell her horrible things like her parents were dead or like just very very similar things to get that kind of a performance and like for her to have Shirley Temple to have turned out like relatively normal and like you know married a nice guy like went on to work in as an ambassador and like that kind of thing I'm still shocked to this day because she and Judy Garland just went through the ringer
2: oh man no kidding
4: the horrors of real life and showbiz. <laughs> but, but now back to contrived horror of Halloween H2O. I don't know how we got from Halloween H2O in 1998 to Shirley Temple, but I'm sure we could have fun playing that six degrees of separation game. Um, Emily, do you want to give us like a quick rundown of the plot?
1: Sure thing. I tried to condense this as much as possible. Okay, so Lori Strode, who's played obviously by Jamie Lee Curtis, has been presumed dead by way of a car accident for many years. On October 29th, 1998, 20 years after Michael Myers was able to escape the Haddonfield Hospital, he ransacks the home of Marion Chambers, who is now Marion Whittington. You should know her name because she was one of the associates of Dr. Sam Lewis, who has since passed away, the the psychiatrist who had worked with Michael Myers. He ransacks the house and steals records on Lori, um, and in the process, when she finds her house has been ransacked, she is killed along with two neighborhood kids who help um, check out the house, including a young Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who's like 16 <laughs> years old. Yeah, JGL. He's like a skater, bro. <laughs> so he stole the file on Lori, which has the true information of her whereabouts. We find out that she faked her death to no longer have to deal with Michael and has changed her name to Carrie and is the headmistress of Hillcrest Academy Affording School in Northern California. Lori is seeing one of the guidance counselors at the school, Will Brennan, played by Adam Arkin, and her son, John, is played played by Josh Hartnett in his first ever major film role. He even gets an introducing credit at the beginning, attends this uh, private school. The entire campus, with the exception of Lori, Will, John, his girlfriend, Molly, who's played by Michelle Williams, and their friends, Adam, played by Adam Handbird, or sorry, um, I believe, yes, Adam Handbird, and his girlfriend, Sarah, played by Jodie Lynn O'Keefe from She's All That. She's Taylor, the bad, the public. Oh, oh, the
4: the mean girl who's, okay, the one that leaves her for, um, what's his face from SLC Punk. Yes. Matthew Lillard. Exactly.
1: (laughs) And Ronnie, the security guard, who's played by LL Cool J. The rest of the campus, otherwise, is on a trip to Yosemite. Basically, Lori wouldn't let John go because she's very protective. Molly couldn't go because of tuition issues. And then Sarah and Adam are like, whatever, let's have fun with it and make up an excuse to not go. So they, like, can skip out on the trip and hold a Halloween party in the basement of their school.
4: Like you do. Everybody everybody knows. a little
1: little booze, you know, you know, you know. I'm going to skip a bunch of stuff here. But it's Halloween night and exactly 20 years after Michael Myers first attacked Lori and he shows up to campus. Lori is just trying to have a chill date night with her guidance counselor boyfriend and (laughs) confesses to him her real identity, that she's not in fact Carrie, she's Lori, and tells him the story about Michael Myers, who is in fact her brother, if you watch some of the previous movies, and how he killed her sister and has been trying to kill her since, and that she's living in uh, secrecy, essentially, with a different identity. She then gets paranoid about it being Halloween night and a bunch of suspicious things start happening. And then she rightfully guesses that her son never made it to Yosemite because she let him go after she she granted him permission. But he was like, whatever, I'm going to, you know, make out with my girlfriend because camping gear is still in his room. And guess what? The phone lines are down. Spooky, spooky. Oh,
4: my God. Uh, And the
1: security guard shows up. uh, Ella Cool J shows up to tell them, like, the phone lines are down. Things are falling apart. Whatever. So Michael is on campus because he now knows where Laurie is, and he proceeds to kill Adam and Sarah and then goes after John and Molly. Laurie and Will are able to save them, and then when Laurie and Will go looking for Michael Myers, they hear something and shoot because they have a gun, who they presume to be Michael, but is in fact Ronnie the security guard. Oh no, not LL
4: Cool J. Yes.
1: Just as they're checking it to see if he's still alive, Michael kills will. Lori then has her showdown with Michael and she stabs him a few times and pushes him off a balcony. She goes to stab him one final time downstairs, but Ronnie, who's still alive, yay, stops her. Michael is taken into the coroner's van, which Lori then steals to finish out any possibility of him still being alive.
4: Well, wasn't there, like, a whole a subplot or, like, spoken thing where they're, like, you have to chop off his head? It's, yeah. It's so, the so, rules. So, so
1: yeah, yeah. Well, this, this comes <laughs> up. So he, of course, wakes up and attacks her in the van. But she stops short so that he flies through the windshield. And then she drives him into him and after tumbling out of the car while going down a steep hill she decapitates him with an axe. And then that's that.
4: Was <laughs> the axe in the ambulance?
1: Yeah, it was like a fire safety axe. <laughs> okay. Yes, yes, yes.
4: Wow. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so like one of those like little short axes yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not even a full-blown axe. <laughs> no, correct.
1: So that that is the gist of the plot. I, you know, took out a few things here and there but there you go. That's H2O. Um
4: do you have any standout kills or uh, standout memories from H Two O, Alyssa? Um. Well, you know, so
2: as I was refreshing my memory recently, watching it again, I definitely I was like, I'm gonna write stuff down while I watch it, so like, have some talking points, you know, because I'm prepared. <laughs> um, Thank you. Obviously, like wrote like four things down, but a couple things, a couple things I definitely did uh, cash was like, the incredible cast, like, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, right? This tiny little role at the beginning. And that must have been, like, his, like, kind of transitional time between Third Rock from the Sun and, like, doing movies with, like, his new short hair. Yeah. Yeah, and
4: I think a lot of people who were on TV when they were trying to start their movie career ended up being in a scary movie of some sort, most likely written yeah. by Kevin Williamson since he wrote every teen scary movie in yep. the late totally. 90s. See
2: every Party totally. of Five cast member.
4: <laughs> yeah.
2: One question I had for the universe was <laughs> why in every single shot Josh Hartnett's hair, like, fucked up in some way or another. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it always looks like he has just gotten out of bed or like scratched his head really hard or it, it's just it's sticking out in some place somewhere I,
4: I it think it was like, part of his <laughs> look
2: 1998 <laughs>
1: like
4: I mean honestly I feel like that was part of his look like cuz he looked kind of he had the same kind of hairdo in the faculty where you're like just brush it. It looked like he recently yeah. took off a beanie or something and nobody <laughs> it's part of like a bad boy mystique I think he was trying to cultivate which maybe at the right. time worked but now everybody's like what's wrong with your hair?
1: It, yeah, I and mean he just
4: looks sleepy. <laughs> he he always kind of looks sleepy. I think that's just part of his look I think at this point now.
1: I also wonder if they kind of did that cuz like Not to say that the other guy in their friends is not cute, but he's certainly not Josh Hartnett. Um, I almost wonder if they did that to, like, offset him a little. Like, he can't be too hot, so let's, like, (laughs) mess up his hair a little bit.
2: (laughs) I mean, speaking of hotness, like, I feel like 25% of the movie was, like, and another 25% was, like, them all making out. Yeah. In like, <laughs> this there was a weird basement.
4: I think, I think all of funny. that is to, to speak to or trap, like, a younger audience that they were trying to capture that maybe – hadn't grown up seeing halloween and wanted to like get them into this franchise thinking it was like sexy and cool and hip which i think a lot of movies now like truth or dare or the ouija board movie are all trying to do that to some extent like oh it's it's cool and dark or like even that slender man movie that they made just some of it doesn't really quite translate but they still try to do it and make it like hip and young and get them into like this horror movie genre and it cost them, like, no money. I think that's also part of the appeal of making a horror movie, is that we can get it done for cheap, and no matter what, it'll make back most of its budget.
1: Yeah, it cost right. $17 million to make, and then it retur- I think it came out with, like, $55 million. So not as amazing as some of the other movies, but still,
2: like, plenty, considering the budget. Right. That
4: right. is quite a bit, considering one how thing, little it was made for. One thing
2: I really liked about H2O in particular is it's kind of like you see this, Switch in Laurie Strode from like really being the passive player between her and Michael Myers to that switch of her stalking him. Mm-hmm. Um, for and sure. That like carries, for- that spirit definitely carries forward to the, the recent one. Well, exactly, which is yeah. Really fun to watch.
4: I feel like Did it, they the.
2: Make- Did they make another one after H2O? Yeah, Halloween Resurrection.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's like 2005, 2006, I think. No, I I totally agree with what you're saying, though. I I noticed that. And I almost wonder if that was part of like, not only just so Kevin Williamson doesn't have a credit in this movie, but he did help write the concept and later also Mm -hmm. did a lot of the rewrites on the script. So I wonder if that's partially him giving this kind of a new fresh voice. And also partially Jamie Lee Curtis because she was yeah. really hesitant to do this film. This was her first film yeah. back in the franchise in, like, ten years plus. And they basically, she there were a bunch of conditions. Like, they couldn't write the ending to immediately lead into a sequel so she
4: could oh, opt wow. out.
1: Yeah, so if you watch it, like later the next movie resurrection does in fact play on that um they so they film stuff in uh that they never used in that film so that they could prepare it for a sequel if they wanted to release one several years later but they essentially end it so that it's it's spooky but it's not in a need for a sequel where Jamie lee curtis is is starring. Yeah.
4: well they've done it That's before like... so it, it kind of yeah. tracks sorry what were you yeah. gonna say
2: That's... That's really smart on her part, especially because by the late 90s, she was, like, a star in her own right. Exactly. And for her to agree to do it, like, really made them, like, millions of dollars just to have her in it
4: again. Yeah, I think it kind of gave it more of a cachet than it would have if it was them just churning out another Halloween movie, which is what they had been yeah. doing, where at least when Jamie Lee Curtis is attached, you can kind of assume that there will be some adjustments to the script to kind of match the star power that's associated with it, For so sure. it won't just be, like, another mindless entry into the franchise. And I think it's definitely what the franchise needed at that point because it had kind of just become another, like, B-list or, like, B-movie genre movie that was just sort of like, oh, it's just another slasher building off of, like, a franchise. But, I, I mean, I know that he's suppo- Mike Myers is supposed to be this, like, immortal killer, and that's why they can do that kind of stuff where they can kind of, like, bring him back whenever and he can withstand whatever as well. But I don't know if that helps or hurts things. Like, if they maybe kind of waited in between would it have maybe made h2o a better movie instead of diluting or or cheapening the brand over all these years just trying to make some sort of money or cash in on it yeah
2: i mean for me though sorry you touched on the immortal nature of michael myers Mm -hmm. and then you, you mentioned cutting off his head and i didn't put that together until now is that like a little sort of nod to him being a zombie (laughs)
4: honestly i never really thought about it that way but you would think that they treat him as such i mean i know that like in the jason franchise not to get like too out of the uh, off topic but like they are sort of similar in the sense that like they're both they both walk very slowly yeah um they take their time to murder. They only come out like around certain times of years and when, you know, teens are misbehaving. Death and you can shots, and you can only really know, kill yeah. them when you chop off their heads allegedly because even that doesn't really stop them. And they resurrect Jason in like six or five or one of those. Is I think it six, it's six?
1: because that's when we saw for oh, how, yeah. how did this get made?
4: <laughs> but and so technically, you're fighting a zombie at that point, though, right? So I, I do wonder if Mike Myers is also in the realm of like a, a zombie. But then how does, I mean, I guess this is why you have to like forget the rest of what you might know about the franchise and just start fresh every single time or else, you know, we wouldn't have another one. Right. Yeah.
2: I, yeah. That's, that's always been interesting to me. Like when I first started watching it, I kind of thought, oh, he's just like, he's huge and he's like really hardy or maybe he's <laughs> wearing a blue vest or like, but then.
4: But know, all those I things only I go so far. Yeah. It's truly. I don't know. It's a lot of suspension of disbelief you have at the end of the day. I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Jamie Lee Curtis is the perfect segue into Scream Queens because earlier in the episode, Emily and I talked about. I know What you did last summer, and Scream Two. They both have some very notable Scream Queens from the late '90s, like Jennifer Love Hewitt, Sarah Michelle Gellar, and Nev Campbell. Obviously, do you, and so I have one question. Do you have a favorite out of the three of them, or another uh, '90s Scream Queen that we're possibly forgetting about?
2: Oh, man, '90s Scream Queen. I, you know, it, it's hard to beat Nev Campbell in in the Scream franchise. She's pretty, she's pretty fantastic in those. But honestly, I think a, a true hero from that franchise I'd probably like even more is Courtney Cox. Gail, oh,
3: right.
4: Gail Weathers. Yeah. yeah. She does save the day in her own way.
2: She really does.
4: Her bangs keep her from getting murdered in the third one. Right. So, I don't know.
2: She's she's pretty
4: solid. I think so. I think the funniest thing that all three of them have in common are, like, terrible 90s eyebrows, though. Like, all all of them. That was the thing that stuck out the most to me. When I was rewatching Scream and Scream Two over the weekend, it was just like, uh, why? Why did we do this to ourselves?
1: Because the fashions are definitely back. We yeah, that's the one indicator. Oh, this is the real nineties. Like not teenagers' decision to bring back nineties clothing in twenty nineteen.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do they do they have a true dedication to bring the look back? Do they overpluck their eyebrows and then fill them in with a pencil? <laughs>
4: A wet and wild pencil. It has to be as cheap as possible because it has to look like as close to a crayon as humanly possible because Gosh. that was like what that look was. Sarah Michelle Geller's Eyebrows and Scream 2 in particular because there were some close ups where I was like, why did they let you do this to yourself? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Do you think that there are any up and coming scream queens from any recent horror movies that you've seen that we should take note of? You know, I feel
2: like horror these days really, really has moved away from. The slasher type and mm-hmm. and the tropes of like feeble women screaming and their tops falling off and stuff like that. So I think I think any scream queens that in that sense is gonna, they're going to be seen in all of these remakes they're doing. However, the closest thing I always think of is definitely like the Ryan Murphy franchises, so American yeah. Horror Story and Scream Queens, literally called Scream Queens. <laughs> um, I feel like. One one common actress thread in there is Emma Roberts. For sure. Yes. Although she doesn't tend to be the screamer. She tends to just be the bitch in all of it.
4: Well, I know that you're finishing up <laughs> Apocalypse right now, but she plays a completely different character in American Horror Story 1984, which is on right now. And I actually hmm. think this is one of the more fun installments that they've done in a long time where... This is, like, what you wanted Roanoke to be without that, like, annoying late-act twist where you're like, ugh, you just undid all of this fun shit that you were starting. 84 is staying in its universe without any, like, major wild twists so far, hopefully. It's only—I think it's a shortened season. I forget how many episodes, but we're we're nearing the end, and it's going to end before Thanksgiving, so— that's all good, but she plays more of like a, a traditional scream queen type in '84, where she does do a lot of screaming, but she's also the the final girl with you know some asterisks attached to that.
2: I love it. That's wonderful.
4: But she is typically like a bitchy girl. She, I mean, she was really bitchy in Scream Queens as Chantel. Uh, that she whole was great in that,
2: that whole episode
4: where she made fun of Taylor Swift was very funny. It was
2: brilliant. <laughs> uh, that, yeah. I really enjoyed that show a lot, and Billy Lord really got to like come to light in that. Hmm. Um, She was just, yeah, she was fantastic. And I loved that Jamie Lee Curtis was in that show, too. It was perfect for her. It felt
4: very apropos. And I also really liked Leah Michelle in it, too. Yeah,
2: yeah, I did, too. Yeah, she was fantastic, actually. There's a lot of really
4: good performances in that show. Too short-lived. The second season kind of lost its way in the same way that, like, Unreal did in its Mm -hmm. second season, where you're like, ah, you were so close to being great, and then you, like, lost your mind. And now we're here. But I definitely agree with you that in 2019, it's not super relevant, a Scream Queen title. I mean, it's more like a final girl or, like, the person that Mm -hmm. lives till the end. And it could kind of be whoever at this point. There are no rules. I feel like Cabin Fever, or not Cabin Fever, I'm sorry, Cabin in the Woods Mm
2: -hmm.
4: kind of, like, undid Mm -hmm. a lot of that stuff. Did you like Cabin in the Woods?
2: (laughs) Speaking of final girl, I don't know if either of you are, are into Ari after, but... Um, I mean, technically, there's a final girl in in Midsommar. I was
1: about to say it! Florence Pugh! I just yelled. That was my fault. I apologize. Yes.
4: She... I mean, I love... I thought she was so great in the end. There were so many (laughs) moments. Like, it's so fucking dark, but it's... But because it's shot in broad daylight the entire time, you're sort of, like, tricked into feeling like, it's fine. Everything's fine. Everyone's great. Yeah. And the only real scream for me came in that, like when, well, I won't spoil it, but I had one good screen, but mostly I wasn't really that taken aback by anything happening, so I was mostly just, like, satisfied that finally, like, the mediocre white guy will get punished. Yes,
2: yes. <laughs> Ooh, and I love... Yeah, I mean, horror, horror has taken a really interesting turn in this decade, and and it's funny how there really, there are so many of the, I mean, re, remakes and and, yeah, remakes are really big right now in all genres, I feel, but that that really this this slasher genre is really just all about the remakes, but the the new material coming out is is so there's there's like weird categories and and I feel like a big one is just like how fucked up and uncomfortable and yes. weird can we make a movie? Yeah, so and I
4: funny. and I think they're doing a really a good job of like what happens when you survive something tragic. Like, they do it in Midsommar. They also do it in that Halloween remake, which I think they did really well, was, like, you would become... If you had lived through the same night mm-hmm. that Laurie Strode had lived through, you'd become this, like, really paranoid, insular person. And I think another, like, a good final girl, um, I don't know if either of you ever saw The the Witch or Vitch or however you want to say mm-hmm. it, but yeah. I think her name's, like, Anna Joy, something or another. She was also in Split and Glass. I think she's, like, another good contender for, like, horror movie baby queen that's coming up because she's been in a lot of good horror movies where she, like, carries the whole thing and has to emote and, like, do all of these has to react silently, but also horrified. I think she's great.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I thought that was, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that movie, and I, especially her performance in particular. Like, women being being the the villain in, like, a more disgusting way and not, like, at all in, like, a sexy way, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. like Linda Blair, to come back to her. She carried that movie as well, as well as Ellen Bernstein's performance, and I would love to see more of, like, you know, it, that's and that's I think kind of what Hereditary has done, and some mm-hmm. other
3: movies as well. Is like really take, really take the traditional role of the scream queen and kind of throw that out
2: the window. Not that we don't love them, but.
4: But I think that this is sort of like moving into a more elevated phase where you have Tony Collette like possibly being nominated for an Oscar for being in what is ostensibly like a horror movie. And then same with Florence Pugh. And it's this sort of like survive. It's more about like a meditation on like trauma and the effects on on women in particular and how that manifests itself instead of it being a straight up like I stab you now and you die and you get thrown out of a second floor balcony. <laughs> yeah. Which is great in its own right. I and mean, I think that Netflix is sort of like yeah. cornering that like more original slasher movie market because they can kind of churn them out and they have a bunch of money. But I think that these, mm. some indie auteurs are like trying to do something a little bit different. And I'm glad that there's a little bit of everything.
1: Not to mention what, another thing that I've really liked about the, the kind of shift in the last decade is that the heroine or the, the main female protagonist in these horror films is no longer just an 18-year-old girl. Like you have mm-hmm. thrillers with 40-year-old women, 50-year-old women like Sandra Bull like um over what was that movie oh my god
4: oh bird Bird Box? box bird
1: box but like you have these movies now where you have you know 40 something 50 something year old female protagonists. it's not just supposed to be like the sexy virgin or like the sexy girl who just had sex for the first time type of trope right Because that's really it. Like, everyone's like, oh, it's a big difference. She had sex. But it's like, yeah, it was just just the first time, like, five minutes ago.
4: (laughs) Well, I think a big theme of these, like, 90s horror movies are, like, there's a lot of slut shaming. And it's all very casual. But, like, the entire Scream franchise is essentially predicated on the fact that Sydney's mother, Maureen, banged this married guy. And it's all of her fault that all of these murders have since started, including her own murder. Yeah.
1: Like, get a therapist. It's,
4: I mean, it's real. I mean, but also, like you too, Lori Metcalf. Like, all everybody needs therapy. I think is the takeaway from these horror movies. None of this would have happened if there was therapy and it was more widely accepted.
1: Can you imagine the horror movies that would not exist? (laughs) Like after watching, I know what you did last summer. I'm like, oh yeah, this could have all been avoided if.
4: Yeah. Do you want to talk about sleepaway camp at all before we Uh, wrap up this delightful portion? Absolutely.
2: That's all I've been waiting for is to talk about sleepaway camp. Because let me tell you, I had never heard of it before you
4: What? Oh, my God. So when we were trying to set up... Uh, a, a time and a day for Alyssa to come join us on the, on this Halloween episode uh, you had told me that you were on like a binge of watching like 80s scary movies and I had asked if you'd ever seen Sleepaway Camp and you said no and it is currently streaming on Amazon Prime and if you've never seen it, it is a staple of Halloween slasher movies. Please give what
2: me a your
4: life. thoughts on this because it is a completely unhinged movie.
2: <laughs> it makes- From any angle you look at it. Well, a lot of
4: the most current season of American Horror Story, I I feel like, weaves in a lot of themes from Sleepaway Camp. From the fact that it actually, like, starts as a camp, but also, like, all of these, like, twists and turns. Like, you think this person's the killer. And then the, like, the casual criminal intermixing with children. Like, that's all fucked up, too. I mean, this movie... I, I feel like at every turn you're asking yourself, wait, what? And then you have to like rewind it. But rewatching it doesn't clarify anything.
2: <laughs> that was I I watched it with my fiance, and that was our. That, I don't think he even intended on watching it with me. I was like, I'm gonna watch this movie, because so I'm gonna guest on this podcast, and and it was recommended. So I don't think he even intended necessarily to stick around to watch it, but he did. And it that sucks was like, you in. Every few minutes, like, w- wait, what? Who? <laughs> Where? And reasons for asking what and who was we couldn't for the life of us figure out who was a camper and who was a counselor.
4: <laughs> yeah, everybody is 32 oh, years God. old in this, in this movie. And they're like, they're all skinny dipping, but I thought the main girl was the camper, but there were counselors
1: and like, everybody looks the same 70s, age. 70s,
4: 80s. Yeah. What is happening? Everybody's dressed like Wet Hot American Summer. Like, the shorts are too short, the sweatshirts are cropped. You're like, what is going on at this camp?
2: And like some of the boys look like they're eleven and some of the boys look like they're thirty. <laughs> <laughs> Puberty something in the water there. Puberty hits in weird places. Uh, yeah, what what a ride. And then and then without giving too much away, like the few scenes that don't happen at the camp.
4: Mm-hmm. Oh, right. The the pre- essentially like the weird cold open that establishes everything.
3: I obviously went on the internet after finishing the movie.
4: Naturally. Like, where <laughs> where else do you go <laughs> after you see <And> Sleepaway Camp? <laughs> I
2: read that the, her cousin's mom, the actress who played the, like, really weird doctor
4: mom, Oh, 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 oh Quaalude, Quaalude Mary Poppins?
2: Her, her whole acting style was, like, really, like, surrealistic, over the top. And, like, she was the only one that made that choice. And, like, where was the director to tell her, like, yeah, we're not really...
4: I'm glad she didn't pull it back, because I felt like she was the scariest person. Even when people were dying, I was like, that lady is still the scariest and most threatening presence in this entire film. She oh, was absolutely. so unsettling. And I was
2: like, wait, I thought she was gonna, like, well, I guess, well, without giving too much weight, I guess she was part of the problem.
4: I, I mean... Yes, when you force someone to be who they aren't, it doesn't usually end well. Especially, I don't know when they're also being bullied on top of everything else. I mean, this movie, it, it as Stefan from SNL once said, it has everything. It truly does.
2: <laughs> and and the, the the cherry on top, the the icing on the cake, was that it ends with a freeze frame. And
4: the freeze <laughs> yes.
2: Frame lasts throughout the credits
4: the whole credit <laughs> and it's not a flattering freeze fame it is it is a moment you want to forget immediately and it's like no you will stare at this it is like a clockwork orange like hold your eyelids open kind of situation <laughs> oh god and and obviously
2: like there are there are elements to it and sort of it's it, it, it's known i think in part it, uh, from what i read at least it's because there's a big twist and it would not hold up
4: no, it's insanely insensitive. <laughs> Yeah, I think insensitive is, like, the the nicest way I could even put it. It's it's also just, like, a completely deranged as a movie. I mean, camp counselors are literally slapping children. They have a convicted sex offender as the chef who immediately tries to molest a camper in the first 20 minutes. You're like, what am I watching? What is this camp?
1: Immediately. I, I cannot stress this enough. Anyone who is, like, born in the 70s or, or early, early 80s, I am surprised people are still alive because between this and all the serial um, killers.
2: Yeah. Where Truly I, started, I mean, I know this is not a true crime podcast <laughs> the whole thing, but, but yes, I I am genuinely shocked that you know, my mom went to college from 1972 to 1976 at Penn State and I'm like, how did you how were you not murdered yep.
4: <laughs> and live to tell the tale?
2: <laughs> right.
4: I don't understand. Oh, Oh my goodness. Well, Alyssa, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for joining us. Please come back anytime. Is there anything before you go that you want to plug that is coming up of yours since you are a performer sometimes?
2: Absolutely. Everybody should come who's local to the Bay Area to see um, Killing My Lobster's next show at Piano Fight uh, downtown. It's called Snowed Inn a musical about San Francisco was Under a Snowstorm, and so that's opening the first weekend of December, first two weekends of December at Piano Fight, and then topical to this podcast, I am directing KML's first show of 2020, and it is Y2K. Yes! Woo! <laughs> so, got your butterfly clip ready, and your lip smackers, and your frost eyeshadow
4: we have a giant bag of butterfly clips from from taking one photo we yeah. have emily ordered like a hundred piece bag they, of butterfly clips. they don't come in
1: smaller packages on amazon
4: <laughs> so uh, please honestly, for all of your uh, butterfly clip no, no. needs please
1: yeah, yeah holler <laughs> holler at us <laughs> i will
4: all right, well, thanks again, Thank and you. have a spooky rest of your Halloween Absolutely. season.
2: Spooky Halloween, ladies.
4: Catch you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for an extra-long, extra-scary mm-hmm. Halloween episode. If you liked what you heard today or liked any of our other episodes, which you should definitely go back and listen to the all of Season 2 and the rest of Season 1, because this is technically our penultimate episode That's right. before our finale next week. And then we're going to take a break until 2020, Ooh. the scariest time the of them future. all. But we'll have a couple of mini episodes from Hallmark movies to 2010's retrospectives. You know we've got your back. But in the meantime, tell a friend or subscribe to us or download this podcast or leave a review because all of those things help other people find out about this lovely little ditty. You can also follow us on Facebook at The Old Millennials Pod
1: and on Instagram at The Old Millennials Pod.
4: And then you can follow us individually on Twitter if you are so compelled. I am at Marg She Wrote. And I am at Emily A. Bajin. And we hope you have a spooky Halloween. Happy Halloween. Bye. Bye.